This is the Paranoid Strain. I'm Fearful Jesuit. You know how... Wait, how am I going to put this? Okay, everybody's had this experience at one point or another. You get on your fixie bicycle, helmet up, and head out to the locally sourced vegan kombucha place that's like two neighborhoods over because your area can't get it together to join the probiotic revolution, even though you're like, hey, everybody, it's like 2022, you know? But you actually secretly love the ritual of going all the way to Booch Boys, even though it's like a 15-minute ride away, because you know you're going to get to sample all the new flavors, and you'll get to chat with Francois behind the counter, who just knows like so much about fungus-based fermented beverages that you can just get hypnotized listening to him talk about developing and nurturing a scoby. And you know on some level it's all intertwined with this unspoken competition you're having with your wife to be the one in the relationship who has the most knowledge about kombucha. Or at least you're having this competition. You're not positive your wife even knows about it. But more than that, you've been spending an increasing amount of your free time reading up on the subject just so that this guy with his very intimidating man bun and piercing blue eyes will know you're not some noob when it comes to creating better, more flavorful, more nutritionally dense kombuchas. Like, you're eager to learn, but you're not like the other patrons. This isn't your first rodeo, right? So you're riding over... Jesuit, what in the holy shit are you doing? Dana, hush. I'm changing up the intro, going for a whole This American Life thing. Uh, what's this shit about kombucha and probiotics and bicycles and man buns? You going bougie on me? Duh. This American Life. Bougie. Okay, point taken. But this is a new topic, right? So what gives? Where's the high concept sketch? We're supposed to be listening to a little audio drama where you steal a spaceship from Musk or Bezos and get into high orbit, beam yourself aboard an alien ship, and then inform the conveniently English-speaking explorer in your patented, condescending way that they probably don't exist in the solar system, and then you springboard off that to introduce the next year of UFO-related shows. Oh shit, right, you were on vacation when the memo went out. What memo? What company, for that matter? And wait... We get vacation? See, this is what happens when you outsource HR, I swear to God. Anyway, what it is, Dana, is that we were going to do UFOs. We were all geared up to play the audio we recorded way back in 2017 with the Roswell tour guide walking us through those events, eager to recount the full day we spent in the little A. Lee Inn restaurant and bar on the outskirts of Groom Lake, a.k.a. Area 51, cracking the books to research everything from ancient aliens to Barney and Betty Hill. So what happened? Well... In a sense, January 6th, 2021 happened. I know we already covered this in some depth. Some depth. Here meaning via two-and-a-half-hour rock opera. Yes, the 9116 album, available in two parts in the RSS feed. Thanks for the reminder, Dana. But while that magnum opus covered a lot of ground, it also got us thinking about how absolutely different our world feels today than it did when we started this show five years ago. Sure, the Capitol riots were a major inflection point. But the broader story seemed to be how QAnon, in spite of Trump's election loss, the total failure of the storm of arrests, prosecutions, and executions of evildoers to ever materialize, and the silence of the original QAnon poster amid domestic and international turmoil, in spite of all this, QAnon continues to crop up all over the place. But the worst part, and this is really hard for a born glass-half-full guy like your host to acknowledge, 
the fever doesn't really seem to be breaking. Nothing's convincing true believers that their beliefs are misplaced. And with an election looming later this year in which Q-friendly candidates seem thick on the ground, things could actually get worse before they get better. So, no UFOs. Again, we were gonna do UFOs. In any normal world, we would be doing UFOs right now. We love the idea of doing UFOs. There's all this interesting shit going on with them. I mean, the goddamn government basically confirmed that UFOs... Not aliens. Just UFOs. ...are an actual thing. But we're not in a normal world. Some have called this the worst timeline, which, even given recent events, seems harsh. The worst timeline is actually one where those weird-looking, unkillable, microscopic tardigrades suddenly, inexplicably, grow to dinosaur size. Plus, Trump gets his reality TV show back. But we realize that while we've tackled topics like false flags, COVID denial, and historical antecedents like the John Birch Society, we haven't really presented a coherent explanation of how exactly those streams of thought have built upon each other to create the Q lusterfuck. He's entirely too proud of that one. That we face today. So here we launch our next big series, which we've titled QAnon, How We Got Here. But you've done QAnon. Twice! Three times, actually. And we don't plan to retread old ground, but we think it would be a great use of our and our listeners' time to try to contextualize the insanity that we see every day by exploring the origins of each weird idea that has fed its tributary into the raging whitewater shit rapids of QAnon, and seeing how the modern conspiracist mindset warps, alters, and unifies these streams of thought into a semi-coherent, though completely imaginary, worldview. So, no fun little skit? No, definitely skits. It's just instead of doing one big one at the beginning, we're going to try to drop little dramatizations of events, personalities, and concepts in as the need arises. Okay. I fear change, but if you say so... Trust me, it's going to be great. In fact, we're going to do our first little skit shortly. You're going to love it. TBD, but what about the weird noises in the theme song? Don't you worry, they're coming. But before we get to that, we need to tell you about two other factors that helped us crystallize what this series is all about. The first is a real-life phone call from a real-life friend. That call came from one Brendan Greeley, boon companion since 1993, and a journalist of long standing. Rather than read you his resume, I'll let him introduce himself. My name is Brendan Greeley. For the last 20 years, I've worked as a staff writer for The Economist and uh, Bloomberg Business Week and The Financial Times. About half of those years, I've covered economics, in particular monetary economics, covering the Federal Reserve, basically. I happen to know Brendan. I should note here that his pseudonym is Breen because of our longstanding rule that everyone gets a pseudonym and also in relation to an even more longstanding and Brendan insulting in-joke among our friend group. Carry on. I know Breen, but his job has nothing to do with conspiracy theories. So why is he here? The reason he called me has to do with a news story that broke concerning a topic about which he knows a great deal. And what is this exciting topic? It's... The Federal Reserve. Wait, I hear all of you out there right now positioning your fingers over the skip button, and I know you want to get to the QAnon insanity, but please bear with us. There's a method to our madness, and it turns out that Breen's experience with the Federal Reserve gave us a whole different angle on this series. Anyway, back to the man himself and why he's uniquely qualified to take us on this journey. 
there's a sort of specific breed of journalist. And once you specialize in this thing, it's very difficult to leave. You cover the Federal Reserve and you sort of understand all the things that the Federal Reserve says and you understand the manner in which it says them and the schedule on which it says them. And I left that job to write a book about the history of the dollar, which is slowly grinding me into a fine paste. And the work I did about the history of the dollar turned me into a historian. So I am now getting a PhD in the history of money. The joke here is I am an ancient and dear friend of the fearful Jesuit, which should make you suspicious that he's just talking to his buddy. But it actually turns out that if you were going to find a person who was going to think critically about the Federal Reserve and the history of why it matters to America and the world and the significance of what money is and why it matters to every single one of us, if you went in search of that person, you would likely find me or about two other people. Stipulated. He's an expert in something important but boring. Where is this going? Around the beginning of 2022, he called me with what I can only describe as a crisis of conscience. I called fearful because I was distressed. I'm not a Fed reporter anymore, so none of this is my reporting. People who work at the Federal Reserve, in particular the principals, the governors in Washington and the presidents of the various Fed banks around the country, they always have to file financial disclosure forms. And what would we find on these financial disclosure forms? Just sort of what stocks you own, whether you own individual stocks, whether you own funds, how often you trade, when you trade, do you make major trades, are you making individual stock trades, or are you just rebalancing? You know, this is, I think, pretty standard practice for appointed federal employees. I'm not sure exactly what the practice is. I'm not even sure, to be honest, whether the Fed is legally obliged to do it. But it is a longstanding practice because if you make decisions about interest rates, which is what the Fed does then obviously that can affect the value of stocks that you hold or bond portfolios that you hold. And so we should know whether you're making trades based on these decisions. The Wall Street Journal reported uh, that the president of the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank held relatively large amounts of individual stocks and was making trades on them. And, you know, he was eventually forced to resign. Wow, that sounds like a huge deal. One of the guys who runs a regional federal bank with insider information about what the Fed might do in the future was trading stocks in his own account? That's got to be illegal. Was he brought up on charges? It did become kind of a scandal, at least, as Breen noted, the Fed president in question resigned shortly thereafter, but he didn't do anything illegal. He didn't do anything that at the time was even sort of against the practice of the Fed. And this is what I think is so interesting about this. So it turns out this was also true of the president of the Boston Fed had been making individual trades. Eventually, some, let's call them inappropriate trades, showed up in the financial disclosure forms of a Fed governor as well. This is sort of one of the people who sits on the board of governors of the Federal Reserve in D.C. Very powerful position. Let me make clear again, none of this was illegal. None of this was even, again, by the standards of the Federal Reserve's own bylaws, inappropriate. It just all looked kind of bad. Wait, so this wasn't against the rules, even though these are the folks who set the interest rate? Correct. And all of them had properly disclosed these transactions. Nothing illegal. It just, as noted, looked kind of bad. But just to confirm we're tracking here, those who are directly able to influence the policy of the Fed are not restricted from making trades in their own portfolios of holdings in companies that will be directly impacted by that same policy, and they can do it before the policy is announced. Now, this is only half the story. The other half is how the Fed treats anyone from outside the organization to whom it provides special access to sensitive information. And again, sensitive information, when it comes to the Fed, basically boils down to what if any, action it's going to take on interest rates. 
Right. And for those of you who don't follow the business news, the Fed has a meeting at which it decides what, if any, changes it's going to make to what's known as the federal funds rate, the rate at which it lends money to a number of big banks. This rate, in turn, has impacts that ripple throughout the economy. We're going to explain more about how that works later. Do you have to? Yeah, we do. But we're going to try to make it fun. Ooh, good luck. Thanks. For right now, just know that there's a particular day when the Federal Reserve announces the new rate. And the thing is, until the moment that this information is made public, it is ultra, super special, double top secret. But of course, the big news organizations, especially those focused on business, want to be able to print an analysis of whatever action the Fed has or hasn't taken as quickly as possible after the news breaks. This is where reporters, including at one time Mr. Greeley himself, come in. Having been a Fed reporter myself for many years, I am familiar with what it takes to be there for a decision as a reporter. So the Fed, when it releases its decisions, the second the decision is made public, there are massive moves in financial markets adjusting to the new reality that the Fed has created. To allow reporters to process what's happening before the actual decision is made public, they let us go into what's called a lockup. This gives you a chance to think about what the Fed is going to do, think about how it might be significant for financial markets, think about whether it's a real departure from what they've been doing before or not, and compose 500 words of what you think is happening that can be released by your own news organization at the same second the decision is made public. Of course, at this point in our original phone call on the topic, he had to explain to me what exactly this lockup entails. In essence, it's a much more thorough version of the familiar TSA screening process at the airport. Please remove all metal objects from your pockets and place them in a bin. All electronics larger than a cell phone must be removed from your bags and placed in their own bin. Put your infant children in a separate bin. Place your youthful hopes and dreams in another bin and then glare at them, ruefully. Place an empty bin on your head, then hop on one foot and recite your grandmother's secret fudge recipe. If you are planning any terrorist acts, you must provide all details on Form 27B-6 and place the completed document in the orange bin, or your massacre may not qualify for consideration during award season. Please remove your shoes, belts, artificial limbs, genital piercings, and a minimum of 38% of your personal dignity and place them all in the bins. Okay, it's not exactly like the TSA, but it's kind of close. A lockup is in a building in Washington, D.C. that isn't even the Fed's building. While you are in the lockup, you've got no communication with the outside world at all. You have to go into a basement, surrender your cell phone, surrender all electronics. You walk in with paper and a pencil. Um, you have a computer that your news organization owns, but it's actually in the lockup itself. It stays there. You hear that last part? If you want to type up your report in lockup, your news organization has to leave a non-network capable computer inside the building permanently to maintain the security of the impending Fed news. I can't really actually even go into too much detail on what the lockup is. Just know that you show up an hour and a half ahead of time to make sure that you get through all the procedures to make sure that you aren't getting the Fed's decision an hour ahead of time and quietly passing it to somebody who can make a ton of money on it. So to review, the Fed is so concerned about this important market-moving information getting out that it physically and digitally, albeit 
voluntarily imprisons reporters until the news becomes public in exchange for those reporters getting the earliest possible scoop. But there were essentially no rules in place to prevent those who literally formulate and vote on the Fed's decisions from trading equities that are impacted by those decisions whenever the fuck they want. A minute before the announcement, an hour before the announcement, a week before, while they vote, go nuts. How the fuck is this possible? And how do the people who work at the Fed not see this insane double standard? It's crazy, right? Especially when, as Breen points out, there's an obvious solution. You should probably, as a principal at the Fed, have to take whatever wealth you have and put it into a portfolio, 60-40 stocks and bonds that just tracks the progress of the market. When you leave, you cash out and then you can reinvest and do whatever you want. You just should not be able to make decisions with your money. I understand that you're probably a smart person. If you work at the Fed, you could probably make better decisions with your money than in a tracker. But if you are in public service, you shouldn't be able to trade on information that you even might sort of accidentally know. I can think of a scenario where you're not even consciously making a trade based on information you know that's not yet public. You just sort of understand things better than everybody else does because you're having all these conversations with people. It's impossible to imagine a world where you divorce what you understand about markets and the Fed and what you're learning on a daily basis internally from just conversations that you're having and any sort of investing acumen that you might have. You can't check that at the door. You should have to cash out of whatever you have before you start serving at the Fed. And by the way, the Treasury Department as well. But they don't embrace that solution. So these people don't seem to worry at all about the fact that they can do what they wish investment-wise while also wielding extraordinary power over one of the key inputs that impact those same investments. And they do this while ensuring that no one outside the organization can possibly leverage that same information for personal gain. And I started to realize why. But the point is, these people somewhere deep down really feel like they can divorce these things, right? Like... This is not a group of people who are cackling and rubbing their hands together and saying, we will make the journalists go through this, this pageantry, but we ourselves will leverage this for our own benefit. It's people who work there and say, well, you know, I would have made this trade anyway. They have clear consciences. No one ever told them not to do it. That's just the way things are done. You are a priesthood that can be trusted with the Latin version of the Bible. The reporters and the hoi polloi, you can't translate it for them because they wouldn't behave as responsibly as you would. That's exactly right. Jesus, that's sobering. But as Breen pointed out, it's actually worse than that. The people who cover the Fed, it's such a specific job that one thing that happens is we all work together at one news organization and then we move to other news organizations. People move on. They'll go to the New York Times. They'll go to the Wall Street Journal. I went to the Financial Times. We all know each other. There's like 10 of us. So it's kind of nice to be a person who is deemed significant enough to get this information in advance under strict embargo so that you can process it and help the world understand it. It's this performance that you go through to get in there. And the performance says, this information is important. I am reliable. You can trust me with it. And I am important enough to be the kind of person who was allowed through this elaborate security procedure to think about this information before it goes out. At a pang of conscience. No, that's not right. I had a crisis. And the crisis was, I loved being a Fed reporter. 
in my weird little world, it was the NFL of what I cared about. You get to talk to important people. You get to have conversations about subjects at the limits of what you can understand yourself. And you get to turn them into words that make sense to normal people. You put on a suit and tie and you hang out with people who make decisions. And I was very proud uh, that I got to do that. And I still am. But I thought about the lockup procedure. Everything that you have to go through to make sure that you do not release any Fed information early. And then I thought about all of these people at the Federal Reserve in principal positions, either governors or presidents, who were trading on their own account. Again, I got to make this painfully clear, not illegally, but it is very difficult to be a member of the Fed and not have some sense of what's happening, not be aware of sort of which direction people are leaning. You know, one of the things you do if you're a Fed reporter is you're constantly trying to figure out what kind of conversations are being held internally and what that means for markets. Because the people who pay your salary are people who read financial news magazines. They want to know this stuff too, because they want to make trades based on them. So I thought about the inconvenience of the lockup procedure, but also the inconvenience of it is in part something that makes you feel important. You get to sit in the front row when they have their press conferences and you get to raise your hand and ask questions, it's very exciting. And I thought about how that made me feel. And then I thought about how there are people inside of that system who are trading on their own account in ways that sort of now when you actually think about it, feel kind of inappropriate. It's not just that there's a seeming double standard at play here between the lockup procedure for reporters and the fact that there are actually no rules about Fed governors trading on their own accounts. It's also that the whole experience, whether deliberately or not, has the effect of making the people who are supposed to be the representatives of the independent fifth estate, the press whistleblowers who will speak truth to the people about the power of the Fed, the experience makes them feel like they're important, part of a secret club. This seeming indignity of the lockup procedure in reality feels like the pat-down by a bouncer before you get let in past the red velvet rope at the VIP entrance. He assumes. It's not like anyone is letting him in VIP entrances. I don't care. Stupid club anyway. I don't even want to go in there. This brings us to the reason I'm discussing this conversation in the context of my QAnon concerns. The scenario my friend, the expert financial journalist in an Ivy League PhD program, the guy who has covered the Federal Reserve for years, was laying out for me, in my mind, sounded as if the whole thing, depending on how you looked at it, actually was, in a sense, kind of a conspiracy. Wait, what? You're saying you believe those crackpots who think the Fed is deliberately putting us on a course of national bankruptcy to appease the nebulously defined, but probably Jewish international bankers are right? Obviously, no. That's fucking crazy. And racist. And saying it's a conspiracy is really the wrong way to look at it. Instead, the people who work at the Fed... And as a rule, work diligently and with a real sense of doing important work to benefit the broad American public, as Mr. Greeley would tell you. They're all really nice, thoughtful people. It's really strange if you've spent any time covering Washington. It is not a place that is full of nice, thoughtful people. Everyone at the Fed, I think they often do the wrong thing, but they're genuinely trying to do the right thing. And they're just really thoughtful when you sit them down for an hour-long conversation about financial markets. It's really easy to be charmed by them because it's so rare to find a group of people who are thoughtfully trying in good faith to do the right thing. I never got the feeling that I was being bullshit or lied to. Exactly. These nice, public-spirited people who are trying really hard to do good things for the economy are hamstrung in that effort by an inability to see how their lack of transparency and their own institutional blind spots 
Like that whole trading on your own accounts thing. Can make them appear to be out of touch with the economic needs of people who didn't go to the schools or come from the backgrounds that would lead to jobs at the Fed. At best. Or as if they're part of some high-level conspiracy to fuck over the American people at the whim of mysterious puppet masters. At worst and, like, craziest. So that conversation with Breen started ping-ponging around my head, colliding with those thoughts about QAnon spreading across the land like the nothing in the never-ending story. They look like good, strong hands, don't they? But to complete mental bingo, I still needed an N4 and a G5. I found them in an excellent book called The Storyteller's Paradox by Jonathan Gottschall. The author is an academic whose career is devoted to the study of storytelling, and while his earlier work in the optimistic book The Storytelling Animal focused on the incredible positive power that stories have to uplift and unite our species, his new tome is kind of a downer. Specifically, it's a downer because it notes that precisely the same storytelling and story-emphasizing instincts that have unified humanity throughout our history are also the same forces that can sow division, discord, and hatred. Bit of a buzzkill. But a smart, well-researched buzzkill, so we read it twice. We were fascinated by the story it tells about the stories we tell ourselves. And specifically, it's about why storytelling currently seems to be making so many of us totally nuts. It was about the dark power of stories to shape our minds in ways we can't always detect. Weird mid-century panics about brainwashing, the hilariously terrifying rise of QAnon and flat-earthism, the epidemic of mass shootings, Deep dives into the artistic processes of some of the world's best and worst writers. The polarization of American society down clean narrative lines, along with reams of research on how our brains shape stories and are shaped by them. This was all in pursuit of a question. Why at this very moment do stories seem to be driving our species mad? The answer, as it turns out, per Gottschall, is that while we named ourselves Homo sapiens, literally translated as wise men, a more appropriate name would have been Homo Fictus. That is, the storytelling man. And that's because our most notable distinction from the other primates, that is, our ability to communicate complex thoughts through language, while also imagining reality from the perspective of another, is uniquely suited to the telling and believing of stories. But surely just hearing narratives can't sway us that much, can it? Like puppies or rainbows, stories are one of the things that we all agree make life better. And this instinctive, unconditional infatuation is now being reinforced by a pan-cultural movement celebrating the transformative power of storytelling in business, education, law, medicine, self-improvement, and many other domains of human experience. But this wired-in lack of suspicion endows stories with a power that's stronger than rational argument and more irresistible than hard facts. When people are asked if stories influence how they think and act, most say, not so much. Ironically, our bozo confidence that storytellers don't sway us is exactly what gives them such sway. Sometimes for the better, but often for the worse. Okay, but if narrative is so powerful, surely it's true that it is largely a force for good. I mean, as Gottschall himself notes, humans have conquered the planet largely due to our ability to craft, deliver, and act upon narrative stories. Story raised us up as a species. Our narrative capacity helped a soft, weak, insignificant hominid gain dominion over the planet. But now, we're living through a big bang of storytelling, a shockingly rapid expansion of the universe of stories in every direction. We're living in the age of social media, peak TV, 24-hour news channels, and skyrocketing total media consumption. The sudden evaporation of technological barriers to entry means that any person who wants a communications empire can compete for one. We can disseminate print, 
visual and oral content instantaneously through a network with global reach, something that even major media companies couldn't match a couple of decades ago. And in this era of massive technological and cultural upheaval, story threatens to derange our minds, maroon us inside different realities, and tear our societies apart. So, sounds like our storytelling and believing ability cuts both ways. Indeed. Humans are the animal that uses story like a tool. Stories function as mental tools that we use not to modify the world around us so much as the people around us. A storyteller asks, how can I sway people? How can I get their money? How can I gobsmack them with the beauty of life? How can I convert them to my worldview? And story, fiction, narrative nonfiction, and everything in between is the natural lever used to move an audience into harmony with these goals. Like all tools, stories have proximate and ultimate purposes. They do X for Y. A hammer is proximately for driving nails, but ultimately for making something, say a table. At a proximate level, stories also fill a variety of roles, including entertaining, teaching, and producing meaning. But these functions are part of the larger sway-making function of storytelling, not distinct from it. Stories are influence machines, with predictable elements designed to seize attention and generate emotion toward the ultimate end of gaining different types of influence over others. As Gottschall notes, the biggest problem is that our evolution didn't prepare us for an environment where everything around us, from our social media newsfeed to detergent advertisements, are trying to tell us stories that leverage thousands of years of human understanding of psychology to make us act in specific ways. Whether that action is buying gain to get out tough, ground-in stains, or assaulting the Capitol building based on an imaginary belief that a national election was corrupted by mysterious, untraceable forces. Two media researchers from Stanford University... Clifford Nass and Byron Reeves call this deep confusion of media with reality the media equation, and it's easy to grasp even if you stink at math. Here it is. Media equals real life. Nass and Reeves know that the human brain didn't evolve to cope with an environment saturated with the realistic simulations of people and things. Our brains completed most of their evolution back in the Stone Age, when there was no photography, film, or Dolby surround sound. So when we see convincing images of humans or convincing simulations of human life in stories, our brains reflexively process them just like the real thing. But there's more to it than that. Because according to Nass and Reeves' data, people are nearly as bamboozled by purely text-based and oral forms of storytelling. Humans have been storytelling animals at least since behaviorally modern humans emerged around 50,000 years ago. Our tendency to get swept up in stories as if they were real cannot therefore be wholly ascribed to a mismatch between Stone Age minds and modern entertainment technology. Jesus, that thesis sounds bleak. Indeed it does. And again, it's the kind of medicine your host is not particularly suited to swallow with a smile. I'm an incorrigible optimist. Evolved monkeys got to the moon a few tens of thousands of years after we started making stone tools, my brain tells me. We're probably going to figure out a solution to our current problems. But the thing is, rather than fading away, it seems in many ways that QAnon is eating other conspiracy theories and swelling its ranks with credulous believers from all corners. From COVID vaccine hesitation to the 2020 supposedly stolen election, from the Epstein story to the invasion of the Ukraine, from school board meetings to the halls of fucking Congress, QAnon is becoming the one ring to rule them all. In the darkness, but don't listen to me, a dedicated QAnon skeptic. Just ask QAnon prophet Dave Hayes. In fact, I think Q is going to prove to be the end of all conspiracies. Conspiracies exist because people don't accept the official sanctioned narrative on historical events, whether it's JFK assassination, 9-11, you know, Sandy Hook, whatever. 
people just are, are reluctant to accept official explanations. So they develop an alternate theory. Q is going to expose the truth on most of those historical events. Uh, right. The sinking of the Titanic, mm -hmm. what the Federal Reserve is all about. Q has occasionally talked about aliens and UFOs. At some point down the road, Q is going to have shined a light on a lot of subjects of interest to a lot of people and will have probably put to rest the debates on a lot of those subjects. So rather than being just another conspiracy, I think Q is going to answer for, for once and for all a lot of alternate theories on different historical events. Thing is, where he sees QAnon as a miraculous key that will unlock all previous conspiracy theories, I, as a non-lunatic, see it instead as a monstrous, unquenchable conspiracy thirst trap. Wait, do you know what that term means? I think so. Give me a little slack here. Like a thirst trap, QAnon sits there poolside in its skimpy bikini, waiting for any unsuspecting schlubby rube to express belief in some other conspiracy theory. Then it lures the unsuspecting prey ever closer with exposed cleavage and a sincere agreement that the world is indeed secretly run by a powerful clique of evil manipulators. And by the time our rube realizes what has happened, he's suddenly simping for... You're definitely too old to say simping. Okay, subscribing to the OnlyFans account... Metaphorically of an alternate reality where the anti-Trump pedophiles are running everything from behind the scenes and through QAnon, everything from 9-11 to UFOs is going to be brought into the searing daylight and all secrets and conspirators will be exposed and purged. That brings us to the final piece of the puzzle that locked into place as we contemplated this series. Everything QAnon says about everything is, obviously, demonstrably wrong. But on the other hand, while conspiracy theorists' ideas about, for example, the Federal Reserve are off-base, that doesn't mean there isn't a big problem with that institution sitting right out there in the open. As Gottschall would tell you, the narratives we tell can aid understanding, but can also obscure it. And by creating crazy-pants Looney Tunes stories that are dismissible out of hand, the conspiracy theorists, and especially QAnon, may be making it harder for non-crazies to see and address actual glaring problems. Because if everyone concerned about the Federal Reserve is harping on fictitious issues, it makes the real issues almost impossible to address. What we're saying is that this year, instead of just ridiculing the conspiracy theories, we're going to find out the real issues that those conspiracies may be obscuring. QAnon is nuts, but you don't have to be crazy to notice that many of our policies, institutions, and the other pillars of modern society may not be working for the benefit of the general public as well as we would like them to. So we're going to cut through the bullshit and also try to explain how a more sensible critique of our topics might work. Okay, groundwork laid. And so, let's tie this introduction up in a bow by getting back to my original This American Lifestyle kombucha story. Fuck off. There is no way you're going to salvage that bullshit. Ye unicorns of little faith. So you finally get to your kombucha place, and to your utter shock and horror, it's closed. Like, not for the day. Permanently. Windows boarded up, four rent signs posted, cobwebs growing in the eaves. And you understand immediately exactly what has transpired. Your favorite kombucha place has been displaced and dispossessed by the evil forces of capitalism. Maybe the pharmaceutical companies finally saw the writing on the wall and used their influence to shut down a vendor whose life-supporting elixirs impinged on their monopoly over what we in the developed world laughably call healthcare. Or maybe the local breweries were threatened by a gluten-free and more eco-friendly alternative to their fizzy, hoppy poisons and moved in to destroy it. Or maybe... 
Maybe kombucha tastes like you strained rotting Kool-Aid through a gym sock, and therefore nobody wanted to buy it, no matter how impressive the man bun behind the counter might have been. Yeah, upon reflection, it's probably that last thing. But QAnon, more rancid and repulsive than any kombucha, continues to spread and absorb every conspiracy theory in its wake. Which is why we're launching our new series, QAnon, How We Got Here. Over the next God knows how many episodes, we'll trace all of the conspiracy threads that led to QAnon, as well as the new nonsense that's sprouting in Q's unfortunately fertile manure. And so, we welcome you back to The Paranoid Strain. Hi there, you're knee-deep in the paranoid strain. As always, we're eager to introduce new listeners to this here podcast, which comes out every couple of weeks in digestible, bite-sized chunks and seeks to explain in miniature why so many people you might encounter in your humdrum workaday life believe super weird conspiracy bullshit. The Voltron-esque secret, though, is that each of these chunks is actually a small part of a larger, multi-hour construct by which we attempt to tell as complete a story as possible about a large-scale conspiracy theory that has real impact on the world that all of us share. For example, in 2021, we spent a huge amount of time delineating the real history of secret societies while also rhetorically hacking through the thicket of bullshit that has surrounded, for example, the actual, super-interesting stories of the Knights Templar, the Rosicrucians, and the Illuminati. Thanks to the miracles of modern technology, this whole series is just waiting for you in the podcast RSS feed. True. You can either imbibe the 22 episodes we originally put out, or mainline the four-episode, 12-plus-hour version that's shared in as big a file size as our podcast provider will allow. Either way, we hope that our efforts will help you understand why your Japanese decluttering expert, your tribe's designated sin eater, and especially the unmentionable filth deity, Bora Kixalator. A she-giraffe whose young nibble the outer branches of the cosmos. A goddess whose worship has driven thousands of generations into abject madness in the basement. A lunatic hole in the fabric of reality. A wound whose separating pus strips into the maw of the insane ibex Exonerathion, whose whipping tail in turn mesmerizes the children of Bethlehem, sending them writhing into an ecstasy of unholy soul lust. Bolt your windows, latch your doors, and yet still your children will fling themselves bodily against the gates you erect, breaking their mortal shells and polluting their minds to follow the incessant baying of the thirsty, unholy offspring, whose long, graceful necks pulse with the still glistening blood of the innocent. Where was I? Oh, right. Why all of those folks believe such ridiculous conspiracy theories. I'm your host, Fearful Jesuit, a man who will fight for your honor, a man who'll be the hero you've been dreaming of. We'll live forever, knowing together that we... So, taking a year off from these introductions hasn't reined you in, like, at all. Appears not. In any case, new Straniacs... That's what he's insisting on calling all of you. Please don't blame me. 
This is your home away from home, a rational island soundproofed against the unceasing drumbeat of conspiracy-friendly unreality you experience in your everyday life. And for the next year or so, we're going to be turning our attention toward the conspiracy theory that seems to command the heights of insanity in our modern world, QAnon. If you're new here, he's actually discussed the basics behind QAnon a number of times in the past. That's right. And while our current topic is going to require us to occasionally retread old ground, we're going to try to avoid wholesale repetition. So we definitely recommend you look back through the feed to find our two QAnon episodes, as well as the second of our coronavirus shows. Deals with the QAnon's conspiracy theories surrounding the pandemic. But whether or not you decide to do that preliminary homework, it does make sense for us to briefly establish what QAnon is, why it matters, and why it seems to drive so many folks completely fucking crazy. So, what the fuck is QAnon? Vice News gives us the basics. Internet's fringiest fringe conspiracy, that elite liberals are running a satanic pedophile ring, has managed to make its way into the center of the national conversation. Q, an unknown person who claims to have top-secret government security clearance, leaves cryptic posts with code words and mysterious numbers across the internet, and then says, figure it out. Everyone gets to be the hero, decoding all the new Q drops and comparing notes with their new Q friends. It kind of creates this community effect among believers. Uh, and that's why the pandemic was so key is because people were stuck at home. They couldn't meet people. So they were on Facebook meeting in all these groups of like-minded people. And they felt, oh, QAnon is this community. And they all solved the clues together. And, you know, they're in on a secret that no one else knows about. Even when Q drops don't pan out, like in 2017, when Hillary Clinton was not arrested, like Q had said, adherents don't care. Yeah, those are the key points. QAnon is someone or someones who post on the Internet sporadically. The poster supposedly has Q-level top-secret clearance, which is a real thing. It's the classification code for the Department of Energy. You know, the folks in charge of the nukes. Q's cryptic posts are then interpreted for mouth-breathers by a variety of self-styled QAnon gurus, who have in turn built an elaborate conspiracy theory edifice that, as we noted earlier, is so flexible and unmoored from recognizable reality that it's able to simply swallow other conspiracy threads whole. For example, if you go back to the first few episodes of this show, you'll find a multi-part series about sovereign citizens, people who have extremely strange ideas about how the government works and who are most notable for their insistence, often in the face of police, judges, and other authorities who are actively informing them otherwise, that the sovereign word salads they're throwing up like a verbal smokescreen are the real law and that the sovereign citizen is therefore untouchable. Usually, these confrontations end with the proper authorities ignoring, detaining, or sometimes tasing these gobers who as a rule learn nothing from having their supposedly foolproof legal theories laughed out of court over and over again. Right. But the reason we bring this up here is that in the weeks after the QAnon-heavy Capitol riot, and as adherents gradually realized that Trump actually was leaving office, Biden and the Democrats weren't being rounded up and executed for their many, many imaginary crimes, etc., some in the broad QAnon community began flailing around for some other conspiracy that would help them re-explain their new and frightening experience in a suddenly Trumpless United States. Which is why Jesuit was just uncomfortably gleeful when he realized that the Q-Nuts had started speaking fluent sovereign in the early months of 2021. 
That's fucking right. As soon as Biden was clearly in charge of the government, Q goobers immediately turned to sovereign ideas to claim that no, everything was still fine and Trump was still in charge. It's just that now, Trump was going to come back later that year and be officially named the 19th president of the United States. Wait, what the fuck is that? Is he coming in a time machine? He was already the 45th president. How is he going to replace, see, Rutherford B. Hayes? That can't be a real name, can it? It was indeed, but I can easily explain. Trump will be the 19th president because every president after Ulysses S. Grant was not president of the actual United States of America, but rather of a corporate entity that replaced the USA due to the trickery and malfeasance of unnamed congresspeople and international financiers. Jews. You mean Jews. Well, sure, but also like maybe the Illuminati. It is my hope that uh, President Trump comes back um, as the 19th president of the United States under the uh, 1776, and um, that he is inaugurated on March 4th. That is my hope for our future. Are you going to feel foolish on March 5th when Biden's still president? Um, Then Trump has a different plan in play. Everybody keeps saying Trump has a plan. He has a plan. When he lost the election, they said he has a plan. He's oh, still Trump didn't happen. lose the election, sir. But he did. Trump did not lose the election, and that's where we, we differ. Please note that the March 4th date referenced in that clip was March 4th, 2021. Huh. Surprised that lady's ideas didn't come to fruition. Anyway, this shit is straight up stolen by Q-nuts from their kissing cousins, the sovereign citizen nuts, and I, for one, refuse to sanction this sort of lunatic-on-lunatic lunatic violence. Liar. You're right. It's beautiful. Regardless, Trump is going to right this 150-year wrong any minute now. Okay, we'll check back on that later, but as QAnon evolves and mutates, we can expect it to continue absorbing and adapting other conspiracies in its own image. So we're going to talk about how both long-standing and new conspiracies are becoming part of the Q landscape that threatens to remake reality into something unrecognizable. And we're starting by getting back to Mr. Greeley, our old friend and Federal Reserve reporter. Now, it's true enough that the Federal Reserve isn't at the top of the QAnon conspiracy pile. That position is reserved for Baroque and deeply creepy theories about child rape, the harvesting of endocrine glands and such. Again, check out those old QAnon shows. But it is a part of the broad federal government apparatus that they characterize as the deep state which, of course, is engaged in an epic struggle against Trump and the forces of good as they attempt to expose and punish massive numbers of elite pedophile and child rapists who make up pretty much all of the Democratic and much of the saner Republican Party establishment. Supposedly. And it's not like you have to dig too hard to find a Trump-supporting QAnon theorist who rambles on about the Federal Reserve. Well, if we're really going to get into history and stuff, the... uh implementation of the Federal Reserve and all of that stuff that was done to destroy our country and to put us That's under right. uh, debt slavery. Trump is the man. He's he's going to do it all. And, it, and people don't even know it. I think people are going to be able to buy houses. Again, I think people will be out of debt. I, I really think that that's coming. I think that's why the deep state is so panicked and wants to get rid of Trump because they're, they're, uh, they hold our debt and that's how they get rich. And they're like, how dare this guy, how dare this guy remove our debt slaves? Was that Roseanne Barr? 
the very same, and her bloviating related to Trump's imminent overthrow of the evil deep state Federal Reserve way back in 2020. So now that it's clear both that the Fed is the target of plenty of conspiracy theories, and also that it has a number of blind spots that may contribute to public perception of it as a mysterious, non-transparent institution that isn't concerned with the struggles of everyday Americans, let's learn more about what this thing is, why it was created in the first place, how the conspiracy theorists miss the mark, and what genuine problems their ravings might be obscuring. Per Mr. Greeley's recommendation, we're using Roger Lowenstein's book, America's Bank, to provide the background that explains the situation around the end of the 19th century that set the stage for the rise of the Fed, starting with the fact that, by the year 1900, the U.S. already sported the world's largest economy, and yet the sophistication and resilience of our banking sector left a lot to be desired. The system, such as it was, had no central banking authority, the way every other leading economy did, and therefore each regional bank was left to its own devices, which, more often than not, meant that any time there was a financial turmoil, one or more of these banks would go belly up, leading to a chaotic and oftentimes ruinous state of affairs. So why didn't your country get with the program the way European powers did and create a central bank from the get-go? Well, that's the thing. We did, in fact, create national banks at a couple of points during our early history, including way back in 1791, when the founding father that surely by now everyone is sick of hearing about Alexander Hamilton pushed through a 20-year charter for the First Bank of the United States, which was designed to provide the liquidity and stability that was so sorely missing in the late 19th century. So what happened? In a sense, you can think of the effort to create a national bank in the U.S. as akin to the efforts of one man to build a castle in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Well, the king said it was daft to build a castle on the swamp, but I've built it all the same, just to show them. They sank into the swamp, so I built a second one. That sank into the swamp, so I built a third one. That burned down, fell over, then sank into the swamp, but the fourth one stayed up. Well, it wasn't quite that bad, but it did take three attempts and a bunch of background machinations to get the Fed created. The first problem was that 20-year charter. It meant that the fight to create a central bank had to be fought all over again in 1811, and it failed. But then the second bank arose from the ashes just a few years later in 1816. Again, it had a 20-year charter, and if the renewal of the first bank was difficult, the renewal of the second became so controversial that the political battle over the topic is today known as the Bank War. The number one bank hater in the United States, former General Andrew Jackson, became the president, defeated the renewal, and essentially tanked the political will to create a new central financial institution for a couple of generations. Two questions. First, was Andrew Jackson ever right about anything he did as president? Hmm. Well, he was maybe the worst administration ever in terms of treatment of Native Americans, strongly opposed the abolition of slavery, made it impossible to rationalize the American financial system, inaugurated a period of large-scale corruption in government through patronage. I mean, he did manage to pay off the national debt, but most economists think that having that as a key national goal isn't that great of a plan. Oh, shit, wait, he did prevent the nullification crisis from tearing the Union apart in the 1830s. So yes, he was right about at least one thing. 
but he was also a super racist asshole. And the second question, why were politicians like Jackson, as well as those who voted for them, obviously, so hell-bent on opposing a national bank? The answer boils down to the totally reasonable idea that a central bank would end up captured by the interests of Wall Street, or the biggest bankers, and wouldn't act in the interests of everyday Americans. Which, if I'm recalling correctly, both you and Mr. Greeley indicated is indeed a problem. Right. While most financial and economic professionals do indeed believe that having a central bank is absolutely vital for a modern, advanced economy, it's also true that virtually all of the central banks around the world have either consistently or during crises acted in ways that benefited big financial institutions at least as much, or in some cases much more, than everyday citizens. And we're going to get back into that in just a little while when we return to our interview. For right now, let's just acknowledge that this is the case, yet also submit that central banks, though extremely flawed institutions in many ways, are simply a requirement to have the sort of big interconnected consumer economies that we in the West take for granted these days. And if you want to argue that the juice isn't worth the squeeze, then you might want to consider that the device you're listening to this podcast on probably wouldn't be possible without those big interconnected central bank featuring economies. Back to the history, the lack of a central bank led to a strange state of affairs by the end of the century, as Lowenstein notes. New York bankers wanted a central bank in part because they wanted to assume a greater role on the world stage. The America of the late 19th century was an industrial powerhouse, but a financial also ran. The U.S. dollar was a second-rate currency. Incredibly, the dollar was quoted in fewer currency markets than the relatively puny Italian lira or Austrian shilling. In monetary terms, America remained a stepchild of the Bank of England, whose interest rate maneuvers could, and often did, plunge Wall Street into recession. Financial independence required a more resilient currency, and one whose supply was regulated not in London or in Paris, but in America itself. Jackson and his anti-bank forces were so successful in vilifying the idea that those who began advocating for the Federal Reserve System seven decades later were afraid to even call the object of their efforts a central bank. But it's not like things were great in the absence of a central bank. Two-thirds of the banks in the country were state instead of federal banks, meaning they weren't subject to federal regulations, but also meaning they were not able to issue federal banknotes. As Lowenstein puts it, quote, the national currency was only accessible to a minority of its banks. I'm confused. You're saying that small state banks at the time had to issue some other currency than national banks? Like, if somebody went to his local bank in Indianapolis and withdrew some cash, it would be some sort of monopoly money shit? No, it would be notes issued by that bank or that state, but not by the U.S. government. And it would have an exchange rate with the federal currency, meaning you'd have to keep up with how much your money was worth in the U.S. currency, just as you do if you're traveling in a different country today. Correction and clarification. Thanks, quick hit guy. This is FJ jumping back into the narrative already in progress here to note that after we wrote and recorded the preceding, Mr. Greeley corrected us a bit on the way that we characterized the question of how the national bank and the state banks handled currency prior to the Fed. The problem with money in the 19th century is that um, you had all of these little banks out in the country uh, that had complicated credit relationships with larger banks that were located in New Orleans and New York, and then even bigger creditors that were in Liverpool or London. He said this complicated chain of credit that was extending all the way, in some cases from England, all the way to rural America. And every time there was a financial hiccup, every single one of those relationships, the trust evaporated. And it was very difficult to make sure that America sort of had a money supply that didn't every once in a while completely implode. When banks crashed. People held paper dollars that were suddenly worth nothing. There were times in the 19th century 
when money that people had, poof, disappeared. Think of sort of three eras of banking in the United States. First half of the 19th century, banks created their own notes. So your dollar bills were attached to a bank. In some cases, they were attached to a store. They had what we would now think of as an exchange rate. If you had notes from a Baltimore bank and you were in Philadelphia, you could pay at a slight discount with your Baltimore notes. And then the farther afield you were, you know, if you had Atlanta notes and you were in Philadelphia, then you were in trouble. The discount was a lot steeper. During the Civil War, the United States created the national banking system. So basically, you could only issue notes if you were a nationally chartered bank and you bought federal debt. This got state banks out of the business of creating notes, of actually creating dollar bills. So then you only had sort of national bank dollar bills. What happened, though, how the smaller banks adapted, and this is a system we still recognize today, is they started taking deposits. You would deposit dollars, national bank notes, and then you still had deposits at these banks. And the problem is deposits are a liability to the bank. The bank then buys assets, loans. If the loans go bad, then it can no longer make good on all of its deposits. Basically, we took a system where the physical notes of a bank were sometimes questionable and replaced it with a system where the deposits were sometimes questionable. Wow, that's fucked. Well, certainly some people thought so. And so they set out to create a central bank without calling it a central bank. And that effort, concealing their true aims from the public as a group, meant that they were engaged in a... Conspiracy? Exactly. Now, is it understandable why they engaged in a conspiracy, given how difficult it was to explain to suspicious everyday Americans at the time why some rationalizing and centralizing of the banking system would be to their benefit? Though, admittedly, even more to the benefit of the bankers who were pushing for the project and concealing their aims? I, for one, can certainly see why they would view skullduggery as their wisest option. But of course, that choice was going to fuel a hundred years and counting of outrageous suggestions about the Fed by conspiracy theorists, both raving and non. And however grandiose the raving might get, those theorists would always be able to point back to the documented history of the conspiracy that sought to put a disguised central bank in place as support for their nonsense. The key event that kicked off what culminated in the successful secret push for what came to be known as the Federal Reserve was the Panic of 1907, initiated by the San Francisco earthquake and fire of 1906, and which is nicely explained by this audio clip from NPR's Planet Money series. The U.S. economy falls into a huge recession, unemployment rockets up, the stock market falls by 50%, and by 1907, banks start shutting down. This happens often during a financial crisis. You've probably heard of a run on the bank like in Mary Poppins or It's a Wonderful Life. People panic, and then they start pulling money out of the banks that might otherwise be totally stable. The thing is, when banks fail, businesses can't borrow any more money. They lay people off. There's even more fear, and the cycle just keeps going. And back in 1907, the U.S. government had no institution to deal with this panic. There's no way to even try and control it. So the job of saving the U.S. economy falls to the most powerful banker in the world. One man, J.P. Morgan. At this point, Morgan is basically running the world economy from his private library in a mansion on Madison Avenue. One Saturday night, he calls some of the most powerful bankers in America into the library, and he tells them how he's going to fix the panic. He says, we're going to pledge to contribute $25 million to a pool of money that will be used to save the banks. And we're not leaving till all of you sign. He locks the doors and goes to his secretary's office to play solitaire until the bankers figure things out. Morgan essentially single-handedly stopped the bleeding, the panic ended, and the country was on the road to economic recovery. Problem is, this isn't the first time this had happened, not by a long shot. The panic of 1907 wasn't the first America had barely survived. There was the panic of 1819, the panic of 1837, the panic of 1893, the panic of 1896. 
This was not a one-time thing. It was bound to happen again. And Morgan was 70 years old, working two hours a day. He was just not the guy who was going to keep saving the entire financial system. Yeah, expecting one septuagenarian to fix the economy on demand wasn't a great long-term plan. As a result, as has become conspiracist Hall of Fame legend by now, a group of seven men met in secret at the Jekyll Island Club off the coast of Georgia. These included a senator, the secretary of the treasury, and five bankers, three of whom essentially represented J.P. Morgan himself, or his various banks, trusts, and interests. Over 10 days, these men laid out the framework of a plan that would eventually, with modifications, become the Federal Reserve System. Jesus, yeah, secret meetings of bankers and government officials done with code names and under the guise of duck hunting? This approach does not seem designed to engender public trust. It does not. And as Lowenstein points out, when the details emerged more than 20 years later, the conspiracy theorists had their knives out. Thanks to its secrecy and its glittering cast, the cloak and dagger retreat would give rise to legions of conspiracy theories. For gold bugs, anti-federal reserve zealots, and flat-out pranks, the 1910 escapade would come to assume mythic significance. Over the decades, its suspicious character seemed only to grow larger. In 1952, Eustace Mullins, a Holocaust denier and conspiracy theorist nonpareil, described the secret meetings of the international bankers as a conclave of the Rothschild family linked backward in time to Hamilton and forward to Winston Churchill, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and Joseph Stalin. Mullins was inspired to probe into the central bank during a hospital visit to the fascist sympathizer Ezra Pound and devoted his career to a lunatic blend of anti-Fed and anti-Semitic diatribes. Holy shit, did you hear that, Dana? They're blaming the Rothschilds. Do you know what this means? I mean, I unfortunately suspect... Yes? ...that you're going to use this opportunity to once again roll out Jesuit's maxim of conspiracy underpinnings. You forgot the trademark pending. Because I suspect that, in fact, it's not. Pending, that is. I'm slow with paperwork, but once again, we've got another proof that behind all conspiracies, it's either the space aliens, the Illuminati, or the Jews. Wait until he regales you with his theory about office fruit plates. No, nobody wants to hear what... Wait, what's that? You all very much do want to hear my opinions about how to improve all office fruit plates? Oh, but I couldn't. It's just... Too digressive and self-indulgent. Come on, Jesuit. Don't hold out on your biggest fans. Give the people what they want. People want this information. Wait. No. They need it. Well, okay. But only because Dana insists. I am so sorry, everyone. It's it's just the, the script. Hopefully this will all pass very soon. How often has this happened to you? Oh, awesome. A free fruit plate. At least the sweet taste of assorted fruit will ease the torment of this quarterly budget review. Sorry, Bob. All of the good fruit got swept up by the first ten people to arrive. All you're left with is the dregs. Oh, well. Looks like it's a few missed grapes and cantaloupe for me. Oh, Bob. You nutty optimist. You wish you got cantaloupe. What you get is honeydew. Oh, Lord Jesus. No, anything. Burn down my house, poison my dog, sacrifice my firstborn to the Dark Lord, but not honeydew. If only Bob's company knew there was a better way. 
We know you don't want to pay for a whole tray of expensive strawberries, blueberries, pineapple, and all of the other most delicious fruits. You've got a budget to consider. So most resort to lining the tray with slices of cantaloupe and honeydew. But researchers at the Jesuit Institute of Melon Studies... Oh, come on. <clears throat> researchers at the Jesuit Institute of Melon Studies calculated years ago that cantaloupe as a rule costs exactly the same amount as honeydew melon, in spite of the fact that at worst, cantaloupe is pleasant, and at best, honeydew tastes like pencil shavings dipped in sweet and low. But that means... Yes, goes to the recently departed Bob. Your life could have been saved if only they had ordered double the cantaloupe to form the inexpensive substrate on which they built their tower of fancy fruit for the early arrivals and left the honeydew to be crushed into livestock feed like it deserves. And that would mean... Well, that would mean you would have found a plate of pleasant, pale orange cantaloupe instead of the green death melon. And your company would have avoided a wrongful death lawsuit. Don't wait for your employees to defenestrate over your fruit choices. Buy more cantaloupe today. How long have you been sitting on this little obsession? Just like 20 years or so. And this is the type of skit we can expect more of? I mean, they'll usually have more to do with the show than this, but no guarantees. Anyway, back to the actual topic. Lowenstein goes on to name a more influential modern anti-Fed conspiracy theorist as well. Some years later, G. Edward Griffin transformed paranoid theories into a lucrative cottage industry. A one-time writer for the John Birch Society and for Alabama Governor George Wallace and the author of a previous book espousing a miracle cancer cure, in 1994, Griffin penned The Creature from Jekyll Island. This book, which became a steady seller, argued that the bankers who came to the island in 1910 did so to establish a cartel with the aim of suppressing competition in banking and confiscating the people's wealth. For such writers, Jekyll became a metaphor for central banking, supposedly an international plot to bury civilization in debts. Sure enough, to this day, G. Edward Griffin and his Creature from Jekyll Island book is the number one reference you'll find among the less raving anti-Fed conspiracists. But for the most part, the book is the kind of conspiracy-leaning tome that's just wrong, not entertainingly wrong. Also, Griffin has conveniently given a number of speeches on the topic of his book that we can find on YouTube, so we can let him synopsize his own argument for you. When I did my research on this topic... I came to the conclusion, which may startle you folks here, that the Federal Reserve System does not need to be audited. It needs to be abolished. And the reason I say that is because I'm sure that if they audited the Federal Reserve System, they would find out that it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. There's no secret there. There's no shenanigan going on behind the scenes. It's all out in the open. If we'll just study the Federal Reserve System on the basis of what we know already, if we read their literature, if we'll dig into the history, we find out that it's one of the greatest scams of all history. Out on the surface, it doesn't need an audit. First of all, it is incapable of accomplishing its stated objectives. Two, it is a cartel operating against the public interest. Three, it is the supreme instrument of usury. Four, it generates our most unfair tax. Five, it encourages war. Six, it destabilizes the economy. And seven, it is an instrument of totalitarianism. You came from Jekyll Island, 
But of course, Griffin's one-sided and conspiracist view of the Fed misses the actual issues that our intrepid interviewee is pointing out. And we're going to get to those real issues. But before we do that, we'd like to take a moment to let Breen tear apart the work of several other authors who build upon Griffin's wrong-but-boring edifice to craft their own more entertainingly incorrect theses. We will handle these in increasing order of strident insanity. He would claim he hates to do this to an interviewee and a close friend, but then he would be lying. True. It now gives me great pleasure to introduce the books we'll be ridiculing through the good offices of our Fed expert. The first is a saucy little number titled The Federal Reserve Conspiracy by Anthony C. Sutton, which starts off by arguing, There is a vast misconception about the Fed. The President and the Congress have very little, if any, influence on policy. The Congress handed over all monetary powers to the Fed in 1913. The Fed is a private bank owned by banks and pays dividends on its shares owned only by banks. The Fed is a private banker's bank. What do you say to that, Breen? Here's the problem. Almost all of the money we use in our daily lives is not created by the Fed. It is created by private commercial banks. When the bank loans you money, they are creating new dollars. So the best way to think about the Fed is that the Fed is the government's way of controlling or attempting to control how much new money private bankers or commercial bankers can create by making loans. They can raise or lower interest rates to encourage or discourage banks from making loans, but what they can't do is force a bank to make a loan. The bank is responsible for deciding. The commercial bank, the place where you've got a checking account, is responsible for deciding whether or not to make loans. Those loans are money. So the idea that Congress gave the Fed the power to make money um, completely ignores how money is actually created. Almost all of it is private. So no, the Congress did not hand over all of its monetary powers to the Fed. The Fed is a tool that is answerable to Congress. There is a problem, which is that Congress doesn't take an active enough role in what the Fed does or how things work. But the Fed is answerable to a charter from the United States Congress. The Fed is very canny about its relationships with Congress because it knows that there are certain things that it can't do because they would make Congress feel uncomfortable. And in fact, we just had a Federal Reserve appointment, Sarah Bloom Raskin. She had made noises uh, before her confirmation hearings about how she thought that banks should be stress tested for climate risks. Congress, for obvious reasons, really didn't like that at all. And they found ways to make sure that she was not confirmed. Congress has a tremendous amount of influence over the Fed when it cares to exercise that influence. The idea that it's this secretive body that's got no democratic check on it sort of completely misunderstands the nature of the relationship between Congress and the Fed. Uh, Jesuit, are we supposed to be surprised that the anti-Fed conspiracists are just as wrong as other conspiracists? I mean, not really. But do you remember that scene in Annie Hall where Alvy and Annie are in line at the movies and some middle-aged a-hole academic is declaiming to his young date about the work of seminal media and culture critic Marshall McLuhan? And then Alvy starts talking to the audience through the fourth wall about how terrible it is to have to listen to this douchebag. And all of a sudden, the douchebag also breaks the fourth wall and argues that the audience should hear his side of the story since he's a McLuhan expert. 
And then Albie says, yeah. Well, that's funny because I happen to have Mr. McLuhan right here. So, so, yeah, just let me, let me, let me, come over here a second. Oh, Tell I, heard, I heard what you were saying. And then the real honest-to-God Marshall McLuhan is there and just tears this pretentious academic to shreds as Albie watches, soaking up the schadenfreude. And then our hero caps the scene with the immortal line, Boy, if life were only like this. Well, this is my version of that. And Breen is my Marshall McLuhan. Why all the secrecy and caution? Simply because the Fed has a legal monopoly of money granted by Congress in 1913. Proceedings that were unconstitutional and fraudulent. Most of Congress had no idea of the contents of the Federal Reserve Bill signed by President Woodrow Wilson, who was in debt to Wall Street. The Federal Reserve has the power to create money. This money is fiction, created out of nothing. This can be money in the form of created credit through the discount window at which other banks borrow at the discount rate of interest, or can be notes printed by the Treasury and sold to the Fed and paid for by Fed-created funds. I mean, it was definitely a plan cooked up on Wall Street. It was cooked up by financiers, by Paul Warburg, who looked around at the the, the way uh, Americans regulated their money supply and thought that it was uh, crazy and unstable. Um, but no, Wilson was sort of the last point in the plan. So no, the Fed did not invent creating money out of nothing. The Fed does not create money out of nothing. The Fed, like any other bank, has liabilities and it has assets. And we can look at the books and we can know exactly what the liabilities are. We know exactly what the assets are. This book explains how this money monopoly came about. Obviously, Congress and the general public were misled and lied to when the Federal Reserve Bank was in discussion. Why the monopoly has continued is that the public is lazy, and so long as their individual world is reasonably fulfilling, has no reason to question Fed actions. First of all, let's start with the fact that the Fed does not have a monopoly on the creation of money. That's just wrong. There are many different people, public and private, creating money. So already when you use this word monopoly, you're creating this suspicious entity that's, that, that is not how things function. All of this stuff is sort of a matter of public record. We can look at these discussions. They're often complex. Here's how people thought about banks in 1913 and for most of the 19th century. So um, the idea that all of your value might be held by a private organization, then that that private organization might go belly up and everything you had might disappear. It was a relatively novel idea. Often during a financial crisis, everything disappeared. They were suspicious of the idea of a bank. They had to use banks. But if you were a farmer, there was a high likelihood that your bank would sort of disappear. Or when you really needed credit for seed, that the bank would not be there to provide it. People were suspicious of banks, particularly in New York, because often your country bank, with which you might have had a good relationship, was also getting screwed in a financial panic by New York bankers. So think of a central bank as a tool. There have been many different versions of central banks over three or four centuries in many different countries. Um, a central bank is just like a police force. There can be a good, responsible central bank. There can be a bad, corrupt, irresponsible central bank. Both of these things can exist. Neither of them is inherent in the nature of a central bank. The reason that the people who created the Federal Reserve pretended they were a hunting party and went down to Jekyll Island, that was definitely a secret that they were withholding. People were suspicious of control of the banking system from New York because in the past it had gone very poorly for them. So the idea that you might take a banking system where New York is in charge and turn it into an official congressionally mandated banking system where New York is really in charge. I can sort of understand why people might not like that idea and why it might be a really tough sell. The meetings are always secret, known only to the Fed directors. 
However, if we knew what Chairman Alan Greenspan was going to announce on monetary and credit policies, what the discount rate will be, or what the prime rate will be, we could quickly make a fortune, because the knowledge has impact on treasury bill rates, on metals markets, on the stock market, and on real estate markets. The Federal Reserve System is a private system owned by the banks and gives only banks this advanced information. We just don't have any evidence that this is true. To just sort of casually say the Fed gives information to the banks in advance of its uh, decisions, there is an incredibly sophisticated apparatus of people trying to guess what the Fed is doing next. People pay ungodly sums of money to analysts who are trying to figure out what the Fed is going to do based on public pronouncements that the Fed gives out in code, and you're supposed to sort of figure out and be able to read the code. If they were giving the information to banks in advance, this whole process would be much easier. We wouldn't have to pay analysts. We journalists who cover the Fed wouldn't have to cover it. Anybody who needed the information would just go find a banker somehow attached to the Fed and pay them for the information. There would be a very efficient market. The problem is I can prove to you that this information isn't disseminated to the banks in advance. And my proof is this massive industry of Fed analysis and people desperately trying to guess what's going to happen. And the Fed is usually pretty good because the Fed doesn't like surprises. It doesn't like to surprise markets. Markets don't like to be surprised. And the, the Fed feels like it's failed when it surprises markets. So anything it's going to do, it telegraphs well in advance in language that is clear to everybody who cares and is somehow vested. So I can tell you that if this information were being quietly disseminated through the banks, a lot of people would not have jobs doing Fed analysis. There would just be a quiet market of money being paid back and forth for insider information. That's not how any of this works. So clearly. Mr. Sutton is confused. To give him the benefit of the doubt. Indeed, but let's assume he's just confused and not deliberately obfuscating these previous points. We still need to deal with his characterization of the Panic of 1907, the inciting action for the creation of the Fed six years later, as a conspiracy in and of itself. In the public debate over the creation of the Federal Reserve System in the United States, the 1907 crash was repeatedly used as the reason to install a central bank in the United States. The Fed was put forward as a way to stop financial panics. However, the 1907 panic was deliberately created by the Standard Oil crowd and the Morgan firm. There is a long history of financial panics in 19th century America. There were a lot of them. They were devastating. It was a badly organized system. So the idea that the last panic that happened before the Federal Reserve was created, that one was engineered to believe that you kind of have to believe that all the financial panics that happened, 1819, 1837, 1857, 1872, all of these various panics were all engineered as part of a hundred year conspiracy to eventually after the 1907 panic, create the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve was created out of a long-lived history of bank panics. And the other thing is, every time there's a bank panic, America changed. It affected politics. Like these things, we basically had a depression-level financial crisis every 15 to 25 years in 19th century America. So the people who created the Federal Reserve were thinking of this entire history of bank panics and not the one that happened in 1907. Okay, the panic wasn't a deliberate intrigue by powerful bankers' agents. But what about the way the Fed has destroyed and debased our currency over a century plus? 
The act transferred control of the monetary supply of the United States from Congress to a private elite. Paper fiat currency replaced gold and silver. Wall Street financiers were able to tap an unlimited supply of fiat money at no cost. Bull shit. This is bullshit. Money before the Federal Reserve was not silver and gold. You look at any market, in any place, at any time in history, and you will find a sophisticated, complex mix of both metal currencies and private credit. That has always been the case. So the idea everything was silver and gold until all of a sudden the Fed said, nope, we're responsible for paper dollars away with the gold and silver. It's just going to be paper from here. That's just offensively wrong horseshit. This idea, I think, rightfully offends people to say that, you know, money was sound and a cabal of people made your money unsound and unstable. That's very appealing and very terrifying. It's, it's sort of it's an appealing conspiracy, because if that were true, like I would also be against this thing. The idea that money has immutably anchored to gold and silver until the last century is ahistorical horseshit. It really is. And it's destructive because it makes it impossible to talk about what money is and how money actually works. Wall Street financiers were able now to tap an unlimited supply of fiat money at no cost. What? That, I don't even know what that means. Like, I understand this stuff. I literally, like, I can't even figure out what that means so I can figure out how wrong it is. Wall Street was able to create credit. That means that they could create money. In America, since the Constitution, private banks create credit. Wall Street was very large private banks. They created a ton of credit. They, nothing about the Federal Reserve changed their ability to do this. It didn't, we didn't invent fiat money in 1913. Okay, that was a good, concise answer. And thankfully, in spite of the fact that shit like the book quote we just heard is a constant irritant for our stalwart expert, especially in discussions with gold bugs and crypto bros on Twitter, we somehow escaped the full fury of Breen's rant about fiat money. How do you know? Oh, uh, because he told me. So I'm going to spare you my rant about how the word fiat has zero meaning. Nice. That bullet dodged. We turn our attention to the question of whether or no, not... No, I'm going to give you the rant. There's this idea that we have a fiat system, that money used to be based on gold and silver, and then it wasn't based on gold and silver anymore, and then that made it fiat, that, it, that existed at the fiat of the sovereign. This is nonsense. The word fiat applied to money, the best place we can trace it to is John Stuart Mill, who argued that if a Congress created a paper money and was solely responsible for creating the volume of that paper money, then the value of that paper money would exist purely on the fiat of the parliament. Yeah, he's right. It would. But that's not how we create money now. None of this is created by magic out of Congress. This is money created by finance, which is the way we have always created money. So what changed in 1913 was the amount of control that the federal government had over the financial system. That's all that changed. The idea that fiat money was invented in 1913 is crazy in no small part because the term fiat money has no real meaning. Let me tell you something. When somebody uses the word fiat money, run screaming. That person has no idea what he's talking about. And I'm comfortable being gender specific here because it is a he. Hey, is he done? Is it safe? We conducted this interview over the phone, but I still kind of felt like I was dodging righteously angry spittle during that answer. Actually, while we're on this subject, it's worth acknowledging that, in fact, in spite of his busy schedule of book writing, PhD pursuing, and 
Along with his delightful wife, wrangling his brood of children, Greeley spends a bit more time than is probably healthy, arguing with various gold bugs. That is, those who, like Mr. Sutton, argue that everything went wrong economically when the U.S. went off the gold standard, and who in extreme versions believe that every single dollar of credit issued by banks should be backed up by a dollar of actual physical gold in their vaults. And crypto bros. Which, if you've been alive over the past half decade or so, should be familiar as a catch-all term for those assholes in your social media feeds who constantly tell you that cryptocurrencies are the future and you're missing the boat by not cashing out the old RRA and betting the proverbial farm on brocoin, bro. Right. He argues with these types on Twitter quite often. To his own chagrin. And therefore has some observations about the particular ways they're wrong and why it's so infuriating. The Bitcoin bros are interesting. Often they're making a ton of arguments about what the Fed fails to do caters to banks, um, doesn't do anything for financial inclusion, not that concerned about making it cheap to transfer money from one place to another, and not that concerned about making sure that all Americans uh, have access to sort of basis banking services. And they're right. They're right about that. They think they're right about that because the Fed is a big, uncaring, awful machine of elitists who are terrible and cackle. And they think that Bitcoin is the solution. I sort of know how the Fed works, and it's not a bunch of cackling people trying to do evil. It's a bunch of sort of people who are limited by the things they know and the people they know uh, who just sort of don't see some things. Bitcoin isn't the solution because you cannot engineer a solution to a social and political problem. It isn't any cheaper to provide access to banking through Bitcoin than it is through banking. Often on Twitter, Bitcoin maximalists hate me because I write about Bitcoin for the Financial Times. I'm often a target. And I find those conversations very frustrating because they're like, the system doesn't provide access to finance to most people and transfers are expensive and monetary policy favors the rich. And I'm like, yeah, all those things are true. I just disagree with you about everything else. But, you know, the Fed should care more about transfers. It should make it easier and cheaper to transfer money. In other countries, for example, you have to provide low-cost checking to everybody. They will find a way to get you into a bank account. That's just, not, that's just not true in America. And if you don't have a bank account, a bank can be a really weird, forbidding place. The fees are awful and hidden and hard to understand. Um, one of the things that we know about payday lenders is that people prefer them because they know exactly what's going to happen. They are not resentful at the high rates they pay to payday lender because at the very least they know exactly what the outcome is going to be. You don't always know that at a bank. My answer to your question about the Bitcoiners is it's frustrating because they too are diagnosing a system that has deep flaws in it. I don't agree with their solution, but the diagnosis is true. Like we've got the disease. Okay, I see that point. But what about the gold bugs? If we think to the sort of three theories of what money is, it's just a commodity. Everything that is not a physical object is an abstraction and not real, and therefore not money. Or, you know, money is a creature of the state, or money is a creature of credit. The gold bugs are the ones who believe absolutely that money is a commodity. Everything that's not something tangible in your hand that is a useful hard metal is an abstraction, a fiction. And so for them, the conspiracy is even more obvious. The Fed, at its inception, took bank money and made it the fixed system. And so if you believe that gold is the only real money and always has been, then yeah, of course, you're going to be super suspicious of an organization that can expand or contract the supply of credit money uh, in America, because you're not that crazy about credit money to begin with. The problem with that is they subscribe to a history of money that's just not borne out. There's just no empiric research at all. 
that says that money used to be coins and then it became an abstraction. It was always a combination of coins and credit. But if you think it was just coins, then of course you're mad at an organization that abstracts us from coins. So you can see the problem. The two groups who are most vocal about criticizing the Fed, which again is an institution that could definitely benefit from some well thought out external critiques. Right. But the only people critiquing at this point are either gold bugs who per brain don't have any idea of what money has been historically or Bitcoin bros who understand at least some legitimate critiques of the current financial system but who also labor under the false belief that their preferred blockchain deus ex machina will solve the whole problem. If all your pussies were just fucking not up and hodl, bro. At this point, it's inevitable that we had to go all paranoid strain and go one layer deeper than is probably advisable. In other words, if the gold bugs are wrong about what money is, then what is money? Honestly, given that this is a topic of Mr. Greeley's in-progress book, he should have known better than to ask. But here's the dramatically edited down version of that answer. If you have learned anything about what money is in a formal setting, if you've gone to college or if you took an economics class in high school, you learned it wrong. You learned the economist's version of what money is and how money works. The problem with that is you were taught what money is by a profession which, and I cannot say this plainly enough, economists loathe the idea of money because it's complicated and slippery and it gets in the way of their formulas. They want money to just be a marker. They do not want to think about money creation or how it works. They just want money to be this thing that allows people to count the things that they have and how they buy and sell them from each other. There's a non-trivial percentage of your listeners who right now are tuning out and I'm begging you stick around for a second because the way you were taught about money was wrong. If you took economics, you can recite this as a catechism. First, there was barter. People just traded back and forth, stuff for stuff. Then they discovered that uh, certain precious metals functioned as commodities, and then they stamped those precious metals into coins, which allowed them to verify the contents of those commodities, and then they traded the coins instead of trading the stuff. It reduces the friction of finding the exact number of cattle that you want to give me for the fish that I happen to have. Then at some point, paper came to represent coins, and then at some point, the coins fell away, and so now money is just sort of a collective illusion that we all agree to believe because it's sort of more convenient to have paper. This is a historical horseshit. It is not how money started. Money is complicated. My favorite book about money is by a woman named Rebecca Spang. It was a book called Stuff and Money in the French Revolution. Just a minute description of what actually happened. When you say somebody bought something from someone else, what was handed over? Like, how did that transaction work? And what we find market after market after market, every single historical market that I've ever studied, is just super complicated. There was no perfect market in the past where people are just issuing credits back and forth and there's no commodity. There's also no perfect market where people are just passing coins back and forth. The idea that medieval peasants were carrying around tiny pennies and sort of exchanging them and somebody had to invent credit for them 400 years later is, again, horseshit. So money is credit. But I still didn't really get how money is created in the economy. Like it seemed as if Breen was arguing that, contrary to what the conspiracists were saying, 
And Jesseret doesn't want to admit, contrary to the way he had nebulously thought the whole thing kind of worked. The Fed does not actually create or remove the money that's in circulation in the economy. That being the case, how does it do its job? Well, Jesuit, when a daddy money loves a mommy money very much. Yeah, I also considered that, but Breen tried to set us straight. The way to think about it is, in the modern U.S. economy, when somebody makes a loan that creates new money, that manufactures new dollars, when you take out a mortgage, you do not borrow a sack of cash from the bank. What happens is the bank makes a transaction with you. It creates what, from the bank's perspective, is an asset. The bank looks at your mortgage and thinks of it as an asset because what's happening is you are paying them regularly with interest, and that will continue to bring in money over the 15 or 30 years that you hold the mortgage. In return, they didn't give you a sack of cash. They just marked up your account with a number of dollars that is equal to the value of your mortgage. They manufactured money, but it didn't take money from somewhere else and give it to you as that mortgage. It just marked up your account. That's all it did. When you create a loan, you are pushing brand new dollars out into the economy. When the loan gets paid off, those dollars disappear again from the economy. Everything other than the cash, and that's almost everything, is just a mark in a computer. It's just a mark in a database. And so we're trading database entries back and forth. Those database entries are manufactured when somebody makes a loan. That was setting us straight? Well, he tried, but I still didn't really get it. So he recommended that I read and watch a rather comprehensive explainer article and video put out by the Bank of England way back in 2014 when the new policy of quantitative easing to fight the still lingering effects of the Great Recession. Don't worry, he's not diving into quantitative easing. I'm not, but suffice it to say at the time, it was a big new economy stimulating idea from the major central banks that had people up in arms at the sheer amount of money involved. The B of E wanted to explain why the QE policy wasn't necessarily going to lead directly to runaway inflation or debasing of the currency, because QE was totally different than the process by which money is created in the regular economy. So how, then, is this money created? The B of E paper has this to say. Commercial banks create money in the form of bank deposits by making new loans. When a bank makes a loan, for example to someone taking out a mortgage to buy a house, it does not typically do so by giving them thousands of pounds worth of banknotes. Instead, it credits their bank account with a bank deposit the size of the mortgage. At that moment, new money is created. For this reason, some economists have referred to bank deposits as fountain pen money, created at the stroke of bankers' pens when they approve loans. And here's one of the paper's authors explaining further. And one of the key points of the article is that banks create additional broad money whenever they make a loan. Now, while this is nothing new, it is sometimes overlooked as the main way in which money is created. And it runs contrary to the view sometimes put forward that banks can only lend out deposits that they already have. In fact, loans create deposits, not the other way around. Nope. Still not quite getting it. Uh, me either. But I think I understand it a bit better than I did when I started. We're not going to spend more time circling this particular concept, but suffice it to say, the folks who are most likely to develop conspiracy theories about how the Fed is selling us all into fiat currency slavery to mysterious international banking interests don't understand it any better than we do. The problem is, they think they understand the whole thing very well indeed. Thanks so much. On to the next conspiracist's creed, this one titled The Tyranny of the Federal Reserve, written by one Brian O'Brien, 
who kicks us off by focusing his ire on the fact that the 12 banks that make up the Federal Reserve System are not public institutions, as you might have assumed. There is no starker example of the fact that the 12 regional banks are privately run corporations than the fact that the banker Jamie Dimon was serving on the board of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York during the 2007 financial crisis, while also serving as the president, chairman, and chief executive officer of J.P. Morgan Chase. Wall Street's largest bank. While Diamond was serving on the board of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, J.P. Morgan Chase received more than $390 million in emergency loans from the Fed. They didn't want the loans. J.P. Morgan was not in any trouble at all during the financial crisis. Like, you don't have to have any affection for Jamie Diamond to think that. This is all very well documented. J.P. Morgan had to take the loans because it was very important to the Fed as they bailed out various other organizations that everybody be seen to be taking these loans so nobody got singled out. And I say this as somebody who thinks the Federal Reserve should have done the bailout in a profoundly different way. Jamie Dimon has way too much power and J.P. Morgan does get a, a subsidy from being too big to fail. Its debt is cheaper than it should be because of the implicit assumption in markets that it's so big that the Federal Reserve and Congress would somehow have to prop it up. That's bad. That's really bad news. But like what's so crazy about this is that it makes it impossible to rationally talk about the things that are wrong with the American financial system by wrapping it all up into this conspiracy that only smart people can see. It's crazy. Here again, the stridency and overreach and tone and content of the critique of the Fed issued by O'Brien serves to paper over the legitimacy of some of his points. But our author has more axes to grind. For example, do you know that every dollar is just another debt nail in the coffin the international bankers and their precious Fed have stuffed you into? Every dollar in existence is a debt that ultimately must be repaid to a bank, at interest. On its face, this might seem absurd. After all, we use money to pay off debt. How can money itself be debt? But make no mistake, our money is debt. The dollar bills in your wallet and the digits in your bank accounts actually represent debts that must be repaid with interest, which are profits collected by banks. So the reason why I'm laughing is that this reads like a guy who just learned how money is created. Like, can you believe it? <laughs> That's like, it's honestly, it's it's like reading this guy is like talking to a 10-year-old who just discovered how babies are made. And the 10-year-old is like, can you believe it? That's super gross. And you're like, yeah, it is kind of gross, buddy. But that is the way it was always done. So this guy is like, can you believe that money is debt? That's crazy. And you're like, uh-huh. Yeah, it's crazy. But it is the way we always did it. He's describing fairly accurately the way the financial system works as this novelty that was dreamed up by the Fed when, in fact, it's just a description of how money has always worked. Money has always been a form of debt. Every time that you look at any sort of historical market, there's both coins and debt creation. They've always worked together. The way we do it now is simply a new form of debt creation. And the way we use the Fed to regulate that debt creation imperfectly is just, you know, another attempt to figure out how to make sure that money works well for everyone. Moving on to the business cycle. Seriously, when you started the show, did you envision doing exposés of conspiracist allegations about the business cycle? Not in the slightest, Dana. This traditional view of business cycles completely ignores the role lending from banks has in driving expansionary periods which lead to booms, and the role of banks in tightening lending which lead to contraction periods. It's all the fault of rising wages, you see, but it is the banks that cause the cycle, not the businesses and workers. 
And it was the banks that created the Federal Reserve under the premise that the Fed would smooth out this so-called business cycle to reduce the pain, disruption, and dislocation that occur at the bottom of the cycle. Yeah, that's true. Business cycle theory tends to assume that debt is pulled from businesses and not pushed from banks. But again, the Fed was an imperfectly democratic, imperfect tool to try and smooth this out. So the fact that this doesn't always work doesn't mean that the Fed is a conspiracy. It just means that the Fed is not perfect at doing its job. To their credit, both of our authors to this point have seemed to try to avoid the third rail of international financial conspiracy discussions. Which we might as well call the when are they going to get around to blaming the Jews issue. But unfortunately, O'Brien eventually strays too close to the fire in his discussion of the unbelievably historically loaded term usury. Throughout the ages, the moneylending was often likened to a parasite, one who feeds off the labor of its host, the people who must work for a living. He engorges himself like a blood-filled leech on the money of the people and grows increasingly fat and wealthy, while the people toil under the heavy burden of debt. Because of the negative effects of lending money at interest, time and again, in place after place, the practice of usury was scorned and made illegal. For millennia in Europe, usury was banned, but the restrictions fell away as the demand for gold increased due to the needs of commerce and government. You know, he didn't actually mention Jewish people in that quote. True, but usury, that is, the practice of charging interest on a loan, has been so closely linked historically to racist ideas of money-hungry Jews by anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists that the term practically screams Rothschilds, Jewish bankers, etc. And the image of a blood-filled leech in this context is totally irresponsible. But why listen to us? Breen? This is just bullshit. Like everything that we know about usury law was that it was highly selective. It tended to be reserved for the worst abuses. And so often your social standing was what gave you the ability to lend money and not be considered a usurer. This stuff is just gross because you can smell the anti-Semitism behind the description. These are all very obvious red flags. It is not true that Christians were not allowed to lend. That's just horseshit. There were distinctions made between the kinds of lending that people did. So merchant credit was not considered usury. And often you would structure something so that it looked like a merchant credit. Usury was not the act of lending itself, but the abuse of lending. There are a million different ways to define what abuse is. But crucially, if we think historically about the idea of usury, lending money at interest was not inherently usurious. Abusing people through lending money at interest was. You cannot historically equate usury and lending with a one-to-one relationship. Usury was always the abuse of lending. Lending has always existed. It's like saying, what if I told you, Jesuit, you would be fascinated to learn that in the Middle Ages, stay with me, sexual congress was considered sinful and therefore forbidden. And because sexual congress was sinful and forbidden, nobody had sex in the Middle Ages. Sex was invented later. So that wraps up our second conspiracist tome. But if all of these allegations are completely off base, as Mr. Greeley has clearly demonstrated, then what are the actual problems with the Fed, the ones that these conspiracy allegations tend to obscure? You'll recall that he alluded to an institutional blindness that afflicts not only the well-meaning folks who work for the Fed, but also even flatters and in some ways defangs the guard dogs who are supposed to report on them to the public. The Fed reporters. 
Exactly, but why is this so all-fired important anyway? Remember way back when we first started talking about what the Fed does? Eight times per year it votes on whether or not to take any action on the federal funds rate. That is, the target interest rate at which banks loan to each other overnight. The Fed then announces the change, if any, and by how much it has changed. In that ceremony that Breen mentioned earlier, where the reporters sit in reporter jail and hammer out their thoughts on what the change means. You'll recall hearing that the Fed raised the federal funds rate by half a point back in May of 2022, for example. Those changes have a tendency to make banks loan more when the interest rate is low or less when it's higher. And banks' willingness to loan in turn impacts the availability of credit and therefore ripples into everything from inflation to mortgage rates. Right. And now Mr. Greeley will explain a bit more about the work the Fed does and how the institutional blindness we mentioned before impacts that effort. It has what it always refers to as a dual mandate, full employment and stable prices. It is assumed the more you encourage banks to make loans, the more dollars there will be in the economy. People will be spending more dollars. They'll be more confident. The demand for workers will be higher, which means wages will go up, which means it's possible that you could get inflation. It's also possible that you could get deflation. Oh, God, this is so complicated. Again, this is why people wonder whether there are people inside the Fed cackling, because this is so complicated to explain. So the Fed has this dual mandate. In the last several years, the Fed sort of openly admitted that it had not taken unemployment seriously enough. The Fed will move back and forth in terms of what it thinks is important. Generally, if you are wealthy, it's more likely that people owe you money. And so you don't want inflation, because if people owe you money, when you get inflation, like the value of the money that people owe you declines. So you don't want that. You also have a lot of wealth. You don't want to see that wealth inflated away. The poorer you are, the higher incentive that you have to see inflation. You probably owe money, so the value of what you owe might get inflated away. You probably are less concerned about an overheating economy. Makes sense. You're more worried about inflation if you have a bunch of money in the bank that is losing purchasing power by the day than you are if you have a salary that keeps going up with inflation and fixed rate mortgage and car notes that get cheaper by the day. Exactly. But guess which group the people who work at the Fed are more likely to socialize with? Uh, the money havers? Yes, and business owners who pay salaries and therefore have to keep up with those employees' demands for more money during an inflationary period. So this chummy relationship with bankers and other capitalists means the Fed historically has been more focused on dealing with one of its mandates than the other. The Fed has tended to worry more about inflation. Than it has about unemployment. And that's because, again, it's not a conspiracy. It's just that, you know, people who are in financial markets and people who are around financial markets just tend to be wealthier. And even if they aren't personally very wealthy, they hang out with people who are. You just sort of all share the values. And you sincerely believe these values, by the way. This is not cackling. Backers tend to be wealthy. They don't like inflation. And they don't like inflation because it writes down the value of their assets. So this is already a way in which the unconscious biases of the Fed will tend to make it friendlier to the moneyed classes. But then this particular problem is compounded by the fact that the people who work at the Fed have a tendency in public interviews to obscure what the institution actually does. The Fed is a bank. It's a special bank that's got special privileges, but it is a bank. It's got a balance sheet. The dollars that everybody wants are dollars that are on the Fed's balance sheet. They are the most important dollars of the world. But the Fed creates those dollars. It manufactures them exactly the way your bank manufactures dollars for you. Ben Bernanke, there's a very famous interview that he did with 60 Minutes where he says, uh, yeah, no, we just, uh, we, just, we just do it. We just mark up the Fed's bank account and it's, uh, it's money. Scott Pelley is like, what? And Ben Bernanke is like, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's how it happens. The banks have um, accounts with the Fed much the same way that you have an account in a commercial bank. 
So to lend to a bank, we simply use the computer to mark up the uh, size of the account that they have with the Fed. So it's much more akin, uh, although not exactly the same, but it's much more akin to printing money than it is to borrowing. You've been printing money. Well, effectively, and we need to do that. Ben Bernanke knows that the Fed is a bank. He ran the Fed. He's one of the world's most respected economists. He's a thoughtful guy. But Ben Bernanke doesn't want to explain how the Fed works because he thinks it's too complicated and beside the point. And right there, that is the hairline crack through which you start to see conspiracies. There is no conspiracy. It appears to me that the way the Fed manufactures money, he believes that to be too complicated and not to the point. So by treating the public with kid gloves, they obscure their real functioning and purpose in a way that tends to both keep everyday people from understanding the Fed and leaves the field wide open for the conspiracists to make shit up? Exactly. You know, this clip is eternal. I see it all the time. Bitcoin maximalists love this clip. Fed conspiracists love this clip because the veil was lifted. But what was actually going on was it was just too complicated for Ben Bernanke to explain that the Fed is a bank. So you've got deposits at the Fed. So banks can hold something called reserves, which is a deposit at the Fed, just like you have deposits in the First National Bank of Jesuit in your checking account. The Fed can create those deposits however it likes by buying any number of different kinds of assets. So the Fed has some flexibility to buy municipal bonds. It doesn't like to do that. And I have asked at Fed conferences, why isn't there more of a push to buy municipal bonds? And why isn't there more of a push to go to Congress and say, instead of buying treasuries, which would then allow the federal government to spend money, why aren't we helping cities make the transformation to the infrastructure that they're going to have to do to adapt to climate change by finding a sort of statutory way that the Fed is allowed to buy certain kinds of municipal debt? The answer that I always get is, we can't do that it would be political. That makes my head explode because the way the Fed manufactures dollars now is that it's got a list of 25 large banks and it buys treasuries from those large banks and it credits them with reserves, with deposits. That is an intensely political act. You are choosing which assets to create. You could, for example, go to Congress and say, we would like to be able to buy credit card receivables because we want to make sure that ordinary Americans have access to liquidity when they need it through credit cards because we want to bring down credit card rates. They don't even think about it. They, they, they don't think about any other kinds of money except the money they create with the largest banks. It doesn't feel political to them because it's the way it's always been done. But of course, it's an intensely political choice. Only a few banks can create new reserves by selling treasuries. Those reserves are then supposed to make those banks feel more confident about making loans. But it doesn't work out that way. The problem is broader, though, as Breen explains to us in talking about the Fed's actions around the world during the pandemic. At the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of foreign banks held dollars. People started demanding those dollars, and they were worried they would not have enough. So the Federal Reserve very quickly did what's called a currency swap went to a fairly large list of central banks, not just the European Central Bank, but I think also like all the way to the South African Central Bank. The Fed agrees to give them Federal Reserve dollars, and in exchange, it'll take their currency temporarily. In theory, this is in case the Fed needs their money or they need the Fed's money, but like we all know what's going on. It's because during a crisis, foreign banks hold dollar-denominated deposits, and then people show up to get their dollars, and the banks don't have them, so then they go to their central bank, and the central bank says, well, we actually don't have that many dollars. So the Federal Reserve very quickly made dollars available. It worked. They sort of floated the global financial system, and they were all paid back. So there is a mechanism to get dollars all over the world. There was no mechanism to get dollars out to America. That feels insane to me. 
When we think of the paycheck protection loans, the biggest banks didn't write a ton of them in the beginning because they were scary and weird and they didn't understand it. And the, the banks that wrote a ton of them were community banks. I went out and hung out with a community banker in North Dakota for a while, and he talked about what he had to do to write these loans. If you want to create money for everybody, you have to care because it's not a good way to make money. He was driving in his pickup truck to people who didn't even have an email address, mechanics, hairdressers. These people ran completely cash-based businesses. They did not keep records. They didn't know how to file for a loan. And so we had to sit down with them in the middle of a pandemic in the parking lot so everybody was somewhat safe and like figure out how to turn stuff they had in their head into documents so he could get them a loan. So at the very beginning of the pandemic, you had machinery at the Fed that immediately made dollars available all over the world. We did not have comparable machinery to make sure that hairdressers could take money that government was desperately trying to give them. It's not a conspiracy, but it is a consequence of what people care about. So finally, let's return to that crisis of conscience Breen had, the one where he realized the Fed didn't even have rules about decision makers trading on their own accounts, and the part he had played in that system. The thing that seemed to stick in his craw was that neither he nor any of the other reporters ever even checked the publicly available documents that eventually exposed the issue. Why was that? The Fed's financial disclosure forms were always out there. Anybody could have looked at them at any time. And Michael Derby at the Wall Street Journal just decided to do it. I was a Fed reporter. I could have done it. It just wasn't on my schedule of things to do. He just sort of reported out stuff that was already a matter of public record. But it took his initiative to say, isn't it weird that these people who are making financial decisions also are actively trading portfolios? Are we all okay with this? And the second he pointed that out, it turned out we weren't. That's not a conspiracy. That's well-meaning people who are inside a system that doesn't think that this is a bad thing. There is a system around the Fed that doesn't think about certain things, doesn't look at certain consequences of what the Fed does. It's a system of responsible, nice people, often creating bad outcomes. Nobody who works at the Fed has ever had to pawn something for money or taken out a payday loan. There are ways in which they do not experience the American economy. And these well-meaning, wealthy people whose job it is to understand the economy, they tend to be friends with other, even wealthier people. And that gives them just enormous blind spots when it comes to understanding how that economy really works for everybody else. Right in the middle of the pandemic, I was curious about how people were doing at pawn shops. They were all losing business because everybody who had gotten one of those checks from the federal government, they had not squandered it on booze and trifles. They had paid up free and clear with any money they owed. In particular, in the middle of the pandemic, I think it is likely, and certainly the pawn shop owner that I talked to said, we're just a retail store now. People come and if they want to sell stuff, we'll sell it. But the financial services that we used to offer don't really exist right now. They've been made liquid by the government. They don't need our help. And it's because the government just wrote them checks and they turned around and they paid off their accounts. And so I look for statistics. They do not exist. We don't track the way people access loans at pawn shops. We don't know. We don't have the data. And that was shocking to me. The Federal Reserve's statutory job is to be aware of all the different kinds of money there are in the system and all the different kinds of loans there are in the system so that they understand how new credit is being created and what kinds of money people are holding. 
a non-trivial number of Americans doesn't have a bank account. And a lot of those people, they don't have access to services to transfer money. They can't take their paycheck direct deposit. So they just spend a lot of time at payday lenders. And it's because the Fed doesn't think about it. They think about mortgages because they and people they know have mortgages. Okay. So you and Breen have done a lot to try to characterize the people who work at the Fed as victims of social, class, and institutional blindness. But at some point, this sounds a lot like dereliction of duty. I see why you would think that. But as Breen explained to us, at least some of those diligent, friendly, smart Fed people he spoke about earlier are really trying to break out of their bubble and listen to other perspectives. For about a year, the Fed held these events it called Fed Listens, where it had normal people in to talk about monetary policy. Local labor leaders, small business owners, they basically opened up and had a public conversation about monetary policy. I think the Fed started this as sort of an exercise in public relations and accidentally learned a ton of stuff because I was there for some of these meetings. For example, at the time that it was holding these meetings, the economy was incredibly hot. Wages were going up. A hot economy is really good, particularly for people who are sort of on the edge of the labor force, may have difficulty getting a job, may have a criminal record. It gives them a chance to get back in. In one of these conversations that I was watching, somebody said, you don't understand this hot labor market that you're talking about. It only just reached us. It may have been hot for you two years ago, but it takes a long time for a really good, healthy, rip-snorting labor market to make it all the way to the poorest communities. Now you're telling us when the benefits are only just getting to us that you're thinking that you might be concerned that there's some inflation in the future and you're going to cut it off. You got to understand like that's not our experience. Everyone at the Fed was like, that's a really interesting point. You could see the room shift, like postures shifted. People started taking notes. Interesting. People in poor communities experience hot labor markets later. This should be like a basic law of physics that people already know to be true. But they had to hold an accidental PR event where they learned that it turns out that not everybody experiences the economy the same way. Are you finished explaining the Fed and its conspiracist detractors to us? Because that was a lot. Agreed. But do you feel like you understand what we're trying to get at here with this approach to conspiracies and the broader QAnon umbrella of irrationality? Sure. The dumb conspiracies surrounding not just the Fed, but many institutions and issues in modern life are obscuring the real problems, which may or may not be the result of conspiracy, but definitely need addressing regardless. And the simple fact that a bunch of loons are spewing nonsense and sometimes flecks of semi-veiled racism all over these topics kind of tars anyone with a rational critique by association and keeps a problem-solving discussion from even getting started. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's because you wrote it. Couldn't have said it better, unicorn. Nice work. Before we jump to our next topic, let's spend just a little more time getting next level stupid on this topic. Starting with the Titanic. Like the big boat that wasn't quite as ice-proof as hoped? The same. What the fuck does that ship have to do with the Federal Reserve? Okay. Remember how the Jekyll Island conspiracy to create the Fed was the indirect result of the Panic of 1907? Yeah. And remember how J.P. Morgan pretty much single-handedly shut down that panic by locking some bankers in a room and making them agree to pool their resources? Again, 
rings a bell. Well, that's where QAnon comes in, specifically QDrop number 142 from November 12, 2017. There's a lot of really stupid shit about George Soros, Angela Merkel, etc. at the beginning, but we'll cut to the good stuff. Who died on the Titanic? What year did the Titanic sink? Why is this relevant? What exactly happened to the Titanic? What class of people were guaranteed a lifeboat? Why did select individuals not make it into the lifeboats? Why is this relevant? How do we know who was on the lifeboats, D or A? How were names and bodies recorded back then? When were tickets purchased for her maiden voyage? Who was specifically invited? Less than 10. What is the Fed? What does the Fed control? Who controls the Fed? Who approved the formation of the Fed? Why did H. Wood glorify Titanic as a tragic love story? Who lived in the movie, What Man? Why is this relevant? Opposite is true. What is brainwashing? What is a psyop? Ah, uh, nice to hear from Computer Guy again, even though that does mean we have to hear more cune on bullshit. Was that the end of the drop? No. There was more about how the Hindenburg blimp disaster was also a conspiracy, and name checks for the films Snow White, Iron Eagle, and the Jason Bourne series. Again, people take this shit seriously? They do indeed. I weep for the future. That's certainly one option. To elaborate on the clues which the troll behind QAnon clearly wanted his followers to pick up on, there was an already existing conspiracy theory which Mr. Greeley covered for us, which alleged that the Panic of 1907 was deliberately fomented by J.P. Morgan, etc., to gin up support for creating a central bank against the wishes of the American people. The Titanic conspiracy starts with the suggestion that five years later, in 1912, Morgan was running into a problem getting his precious Federal Reserve idea across the finish line. Turns out the men standing in his way were three of the richest non-Morgan human beings on the planet. Namely, John Jacob Astor IV, Benjamin Guggenheim, and Isidore Strauss. Morgan had a nefarious plan. He would lure these men onto a death trap, the brand new, allegedly unsinkable boat that was owned by... Who was that again, Unicorn? Uh, trying to access my vague 25-year-old memories of a James Cameron movie. Uh, was it the White Star Line? Very good. And that British company was, in turn, owned by a holding company. And do you know who was the sole owner of that holding company? Well, it seems safe to assume that it was none other than J.P. Morgan, because I understand how narratives work. Well, kind of taking the wind out of my sails there, but yeah. So, the theory is that J.P. Morgan, close to realizing his dream of creating a U.S. central bank, which he could totally control and use to sell out the American people to international bankers. And make a mint in the process, yes. Right. Anywho, some other Richie Richies were against this plan, and so he sunk the Titanic. You make it sound stupid, Unicorn. But let's see what you think after this dramatization of a real meeting that totally happened in the autumn of 1911. Sir, you sent for me? Ah, Bainbridge. Just the man I need. I have to take care of a spot of business, and your skills are just what the current situation requires. As always, happy to be of help, sir. Good man. You'll recall how we've surreptitiously set the stage for the establishment of a third central bank of the United States. You'll pardon me, but isn't it technically a multi-bank reserve system? Bosh, Bainbridge. We are men of the world. And may we speak candidly? Apologies, sir. 
And yes, the Jekyll Island meetings last year went off without a hitch. In fact, my sources in Congress and the Wilson administration indicate passage of the law in the next year or two is likely. Top-notch work as always. But you may be shocked to learn that the illicit meeting in Georgia was only the final step in a long series of conspiracies I have undertaken to reach this point. For example, I have personally engineered the last several financial panics this country has experienced. You've... what was that, sir? The crippling financial panic of 1907 only solved when I brought together the heads of the major banks and locked them in a room until they developed a plan to stop the entire economy of the nation from falling apart. Some have called it your finest hour, sir. (laughs) Indeed. But they wouldn't be if they knew I had deliberately set the whole thing in motion. You... but how? Why? (laughs) Let's not worry much about the details. Suffice it to say, that I planted the notion of a foolish attempt to corner the copper market in the mind of Otto and Augustus Hines, then manipulated the Knickerbocker Trust to overextend themselves in support of that effort. Yada, yada. All the trusts start collapsing, including ours. And I managed to fix everything in the nick of time. I don't know whether I'm more shocked at the genius of your crime, its audacity, or its unlikely intricacy. It must have been nearly impossible to pull that off while leaving no trace of your manipulation. Again, don't concern yourself with how ridiculously unlikely this plan was, Bainbridge. After all, panic happened, right? So clearly, the plan went off without a hitch. As did my similar efforts in 1896. And that beauty of a disaster I arranged in 1873. You caused the Long Depression? People starve, sir. In God's name, why? Because I have an infallible ability to tell the future and foresaw that just the right number of financial conflagrations at just the right cadence could create a new political opportunity to finally get out from under the shadow of Andrew Jackson. We could build a new U.S. Central Bank under my exclusive control. This meeting never happened, Jesuit. Hush, Dana. This shit is getting good. Skittles? But, sir... While your interests will surely benefit from the stability a central bank would provide, the bank proposed would be answerable only to Congress. You wouldn't actually control it. Never mind that, Bainbridge. I'll figure out how to seize total control later. For the moment, though, I have one final scheme to set in motion. You're aware of the Ocean Line as our White Star subsidiary has recently built. Yes, sir. Olympic, Britannic, and... There's one other, but the name slips my mind. Ah, it's that third one that is our subject, my good man. The Titanic, it's called. I want you to lord Jacob Astor, Benjamin Guggenheim, and Issa Strauss onto that ship when it leaves Southampton bound for New York next spring. I'm not sure how I would go about that, but why in the name of... Tell them it's unprecedentedly luxurious and virtually unsinkable. Tell them... (laughs) Tell them I'm going to be on board... I'll arrange at the last minute to have business keep me away. I hesitate to even ask, sir, but what is your plan for these men once aboard? I'm going to run the ship into an iceberg and ensure there aren't enough lifeboats to save all of the passengers. Being men of station, they will naturally allow women and children to take their places and will therefore drown. How? Do you plan to tow an iceberg into the ship's path? Or somehow convince the crew to throw their lives away running into an easily avoidable water hazard? And still more, why? 
Why this insane, unlikely scheme that would surely kill hundreds, thousands of innocent passengers? To ensure those three don't stop the creation of the Federal Reserve. But Senator Aldrich has already introduced the legislation. It's being modified and amended, but we know its basic shape. Aside from making their feelings known, could these men do anything to prevent the bank's adoption? Could you even stop it at this point? Not exactly, no. And wouldn't they, as wealthy investors, benefit from the system's stability, just as you will? One would suppose so. And aside from the terrible deliberate loss of life, won't sinking the ship be a major loss to your investment in White Star? Indeed. I've arranged for the ship to be insured far below its worth, to throw off any suspicions that come my way after the fact. I'll lose millions. Ah, of course. One final question. Do these men oppose the creation of the Federal Reserve? Well, Strauss has actually spoken in favor of it. And the other two don't seem to oppose it, and haven't taken numerous opportunities to speak out against it. But I just can't take any chances. Well, Bainbridge, what do you think of my plan? It's an excellent plan, sir. I'm happy to be aboard. (laughs) Sir, I suggest we fill in the details to make sure the plot is watertight. I know what you're thinking. What a slam dunk of a plan. Please note that even the fictional, purely evil, future-seeing mastermind J.P. Morgan satirized in the preceding sketch missed the fact that he was destined to kick the bucket a few months before the Federal Reserve System became law. And after he went to so much trouble to somehow control the whole U.S. economy. Seems like a lot of wasted effort. Given how silly all of this is when dramatized, we're not going to bother with much follow-up, but it is hardly the only Looney Tunes QAnon theory about the Fed. And yet, as donkey-brained as these bloviators are, we have one extra special contender in reserve, a book called... Actually, Dana, could you do the honors? Ugh. The Roots of the Federal Reserve, tracing the Nephilim from Noah to the U.S. dollar. I don't know what Nephilim are, but based on my tenure here, I guarantee goddamn tea is fucking stupid. There's a good chance, especially since we start strong with this quote from a QAnon drop. Symbolism will be their downfall. Next, we get to know author Laura Stanger, who believes that the good lord himself called her to write this book in order to identify the true, sinister roots of the Fed and answer questions like, What are the ancient roots of defilement and deception? Buried deep in the land that nourished the incubation of the Federal Reserve. Are there ancient pagan occult symbols that shed light on the root system of the Federal Reserve? Is the hidden agenda of the central banking system intertwined with the Nephilim agenda? What principality do the masterminds of the Federal Reserve serve? I can already tell I'm going to have some non-native English speaker understanding issues here. Are the Nephilim some sort of religious group? Well, I mean, kinda. Like, they're a reference to the book of Genesis, and while hard and fast definitions are hard to come by for some of the concepts in those early books of the Torah slash Bible, they're probably giants, maybe the offspring of angels who had sex with human women. Ah, of course. And what the fuck does she mean when she asks what principality the Fed serves. Oh, that's a reference to one of the letters of the Apostle Paul, 
In some evangelical Christian circles, it's a code word for demonic influence or possession. Excellent. I am sure this will all make sense shortly. Not bloody likely. It wasn't until 2017 that I realized investigating the roots of the Federal Reserve was an assignment the Lord had given me. So why me? I struggled at first with the idea. Oh, did she? Not for long. Thanks to the paradigm shift. What shift is that, exactly? Thanks to the paradigm shift I experienced during graduate school, I now realize that spiritual beings are real. I have also come to understand that the spiritual realm is, in fact, more real than the physical realm. I now recognize that there are demons, angels, and other spiritual beings that exist in other dimensions. Let me tell you about a dream I had. Oh, please, you're not going to make me hear about those lunatics' dreams, are you? Okay, fine. But now we get to the juicy part. What you might find intriguing is that we can trace the imprint of giants across virtually every region on Earth. We will dig into the history of the giants and look at their lineage as we march toward uncovering the roots of the Federal Reserve. Wait, the Federal Reserve was founded by giants? Like, fee-fi-fo-fum giants? We don't need you trivializing all of these important ideas, Dana. I'm confident Satan swelled with pride at the birth of the Nephilim. These giants bore the resemblance of him. They were born with treason, lust, deceit, rebellion, and pride in their spiritual DNA. We will see these same characteristics in the architects of the Federal Reserve. I'm sure you're wondering at this point how we, the naive public, who have not been sent on a mission from God to expose the Nephilim giants who created the Fed, can recognize these frightening sons of Satan when we encounter them in our daily lives. I am not in any way wondering that. Luckily, Sanger has a very scientific list of proposed criteria for classifying someone as a Nephilim host, including three or more of the following physical characteristics. One, excessively tall. Two, extraordinarily strong. Three, polydactyl, six fingers and or six toes, four red hair. But what if the potential demon giant doesn't have three or more of these characteristics, I hear you wondering? Again, I am definitely not. You can also identify Nephilim hosts if they have five or more of a list of 20 or so behavioral characteristics, including a number of QAnon favorite items, like... Lustfulness in conjunction with sexual misconduct. Participation in sorcery, witchcraft, and or the occult. Excessive focus on death-related topics and or symbolism. Sexual perversion involving pedophilia, sexual domination of others against their will, and or bestiality. Trafficker of humans. Engage in cannibalism. Commit treasonous acts. Pervasive pattern of engagement in sexual and or blood occult rituals. Commit human sacrifices. Enslavement of others.
And if you're worried that all of this sounds like our author is pulling it out of her ass, rest assured that the criteria for classification of a Nephilim host was corroborated by historical records detailing the physical traits and character traits of giants across the globe. Among the Golden Isles in Georgia, Jekyll Island is part of this chain of coastal islands, quote, proof of a prehistoric race of giants, unquote, was discovered. The skulls of some of these giants were described as the, quote, long-headed type, unquote, and followed closely the characteristics of the Timaquan tribe who inhabited Jekyll Island. There appears to be a cover-up of the remains of giants found in North America, and it's likely the Smithsonian Institute is at the center of this controversy. Traces of giants can be found on every continent. We did not investigate Antarctica. From the time of the flood to modern day, the Nephilim agenda has not been eradicated and instead spreads like a global pandemic. Jesuit, how much more of this is there? Oh, we're just now getting to the offensive part. Ready for a particularly egregious proof of Jesuit's maxim of conspiracy underpinnings, copyright not actually pending? Not really. Because one of the biggest Nephilim host groups, again, according to this space cadet, happens to be the Khazars, who in turn begat the Ashkenazi Jews, i.e., those Jewish people of European extraction, as opposed to those whose ancestors remained in the Middle East after the Jewish diaspora. Per our author, these folks were of an ancestry aligned with Satan, and were wild, red-haired, rugged, exploitive, barbarians, murderous, syncretistic, vengeful, and opportunistic. And there's more. You know why the Federal Reserve Bill was passed near Christmas time? It was? Yeah, and you might assume that was because it was a tough fight in the Senate, and sponsors were eager to get it over the line before Congress broke for their end-of-year recess. Because that's what actually happened? Well, that's what the lamestream scholars would have you think. But Ms. Sanger knows the truth. That... The spirit behind Christmas is in fact Nimrod, and within the spirit of Nimrod lies the root of all paganism and occult worship. Nimrod? Not going deep here, he's a bad guy from the Bible who is traditionally said to have ordered the building of the Tower of Babel. Also, very unlikely to have existed. Anyway, she goes on about this Christmas Fed Bill passage. Consider the gravity of this. The timing of the birth of this beastly bill was orchestrated to pay homage to the spirit of Nimrod. Senators that would have normally given an ardent fight against this beast instead rolled over and placated it for the sake of Christmas tide. I am getting a whiff of a stench that is generally unmistakable. A stench produced from a rotten core. Could it be that at the very core of the Federal Reserve Act is a pact that was made with a Nephilim? Holy shit, what is this lady talking about? Unclear, but delicious. We hope it goes without saying that she, of course, incorporates the most blood-soaked forgery in history, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. See episode two of the show, but unfortunately, given its huge ongoing influence, this horrible anti-Semitic piece of shit tract comes up all the time around here. So the Fed was made by the probably Jewish heirs of the evil Nimrod, who were also red-headed giants called Khazars, and the demon worshippers who built the instrument of our financial enslavement initiated their dastardly conspiracy on Jekyll Island because that's a place where these evil giants lived in past centuries. 
and the whole thing is a pact with ancient descendants of evil angels who fucked human ladies in the era of the Garden of Eden. But fortunately, it's not all bad news. She offers readers a plan to fix all of this. And that is? Well, there are a lot of steps, but they all boil down to very specific types of evangelical Christian prayers. Great. You didn't expose Breen to all of this, did you? You know it. Oh, Jesuit. I know. It's not nice. But I can't normally subject the experts I interview on this show to this level of stupid. But Greeley, he's a friend. We're real, genuine, close buddies. And that means I can torture him to my heart's content, and he'll still take my calls. It's like a science experiment. One that makes me giggle. Besides, at first he was even having fun. It wasn't until 2017 that I realized investigating the roots of the Federal Reserve was an assignment the Lord had given me. I kind of feel that way sometimes. I now realize that spiritual beings are real. Okay. That's not the monetary program they have where I go to school. We haven't covered spiritual beings yet. Oh, he's a truth seeker. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, she's a truth seeker. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I simply assumed that all conspiracy theorists were men. That's really obnoxious of me. Okay. Well, all right. Scolds among you may want to accuse him of sexism here, but if you've listened to this show for a while, you've heard us note a million and one times that crazy ideas are promoted by all gender identities. But let's face it, mostly men. We will dig into the history of the Giants and look at their lineage as we march toward uncovering the roots of the Federal Reserve. I mean, I can't even argue with this. Whatever, I guess, so these are bad people. So Nephilim are bad? All right. We'll see the same characteristics in the architects of the Federal Reserve. <laughs> Is this like, are Nephilim in the Bible? I feel like I don't remember that. Like, is this, oh, they are. Listen, I wish for all of us that we care about something as deeply as this woman cares about the Nephilim. Among the Golden Isles in Georgia, proof of a prehistoric race of giants was discovered? What? The skulls of these giants were described as the long-headed type and followed closely the characteristics of the Timucuan tribe who inhabited Jack. What? There appears to be a cover-up of the remains of giants found in North... Oh, I feel like that's a much bigger deal than the Fed. That feels like way more significant than monetary policy. Trace of these giants can be found on every continent. <laughs> I love this. Can be found on every continent. We did not investigate Antarctica. Yeah, duh, because Antarctica doesn't have a central bank. The only continent in the world without a central bank. See? Good times. Two old chums chuckling over the rantings of a pie-eyed loop-de-loo. That is, until he got to my choice cuts of the book's really anti-Semitic excerpts. Anti-Semitic theories and money, that's, yeah, okay, sure. The Khazars, cool. Ooh, ooh, they were a violent, warlike people who engaged in sexual excesses, usury, and slave trading. That describes a lot of the ancient world, but okay. <laughs> I love that these guys are like savages on horseback emerging from Asia, lending each other money. At this point in our investigation... We are drawing close to be able to connect the dots between the Edomites, the Khazars, the Ashkenazi Jews. Oh, this is gross. Jesuit, this is gross. Wait, hold on. No, no, hold on. Is your entire life investigating various ways that people have of not liking Jews? I don't like nothing in my work has prepared me to respond to a race of giants that were actually demons that lived on Jekyll Island. Like, I have no response to this. <laughs> you, like, brought me on your show to be an expert, and now I just feel scared and dirty. So, I, I love you. This has been awful. I'm going to go hug my children. Having completed the task of horrifying our generous expert, we say goodbye to him, and in fact, the whole topic of QAnon's theories about the Federal Reserve, and move on to a subject that underlies perhaps the most important and frightening news stories of our time, the uniquely conspiracist culture that is Russia.
Russia's history is as surprising, rich, varied, and unique as any great nation's, and it can be hard for people like your host, with a perspective unavoidably shaped by the relative youth and future focus of the United States, to wrap our minds around a culture whose roots run so deep. But because most of our discussion of the nation and its people here is necessarily going to dwell on the negative, it's important to acknowledge at the outset Russia and Russians are fucking rad. This is the homeland not only of Peter and Catherine the Great, but of Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Tchaikovsky, Shostakovich, Bulgakov, Gogol, Tarkovsky, and Solzhenitsyn. I don't want to imagine a world without the plays of Chekhov, and the world should never forget the sacrifice the great patriotic army and Soviet people made to crush the fighting spirit of the Nazis at the expense of nearly 30 million lives. I grew up in a time when Russia was the enemy, and then a basket case, and then a tentative friend, and now once again an enemy. Unfortunately. But I don't want to give any listeners the impression that, however much we're going to focus on its unique problems and prejudices, and the way they impact the rest of the world, that I am in any way dismissive of the nation, its people, or its culture. We get it. You're a big old borscht lover. Actually, the culinary focus on the beat would go in the negative column for me, though Lady Jesuit would heartily disagree. But yes, point is, in an ideal world, Russia would be a thriving, free nation leveraging its deep cultural knowledge and natural resources to help make the whole world a better place. Presumably, in the same ideal world, the U.S. is a utopia, using its immense wealth to put right the many historic wrongs it has committed, to provide first-class healthcare and education to its citizens, and to lead the globe into a bright, carbon-free future. Fair enough. And we're going to take Murica to task later in this series, you may rest assured. But still, we went into this topic honestly wondering, how does such an amazing country like Russia descend into a kleptocratic cacistocracy? Rain it in, Captain Thesaurus. Whose chief non-oil export is inflammatory social media hacks sowing discord in its own and other nations' cultures, and which appears increasingly to be ruled by conspiracists getting ruinously high on their own supply. As we write this, Putin's unjustifiable assault on Ukraine grinds on at a horrifying cost in lives and materiel, and though his initial ideal of a quick, crushing victory has been righteously stymied by Zelensky's unconquerable countrymen and women, the conflict has no end in sight. From our safe perch thousands of miles away, we have the same questions everyone else does about this conflict. How the fuck did we get here? To a situation where a QAnon-quality conspiracy mania has bent and twisted an entire nation into a perspective that's completely at odds with the reality that the rest of the world shares? To find out, we of course sought out experts. Masha Gessen, New Yorker reporter and author of Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin. Elliot Borenstein, NYU professor of Russian and Slavic studies and author of Plots Against Russia, Conspiracy and Fantasy After Socialism. And finally, and most importantly, Ilya Yablokov, who, because he was kind enough to be interviewed by us, can introduce himself. So my name is Ilya Yablokov. I'm an expert in Russian and East European conspiracy theories. I'm also author of the book Fortress Russia, Conspiracy Theories in the Post-Soviet World. As we embark on this topic, it's important for us, with our experts' help, to ask what, at its core, the conspiracy theory that drives Russia's current, otherwise inexplicable international actions, is. Like, What's the big Russian conspiracy theory that animates everything else? There's certainly one that's been haunting the Russian people for um, at least two centuries. Is this idea that the West is trying to get us. It's been always trying to destroy Russia. 
that all the bad things that happened in the past from assassinations of state leaders to the great revolutions to the war defeats, they were all orchestrated to make Russia weak and eventually to make Russia disappear from the face of the planet. However, the central narrative after that is that nothing can break Russia apart and that the Russian soul, Russian spirit, they always protected Russia. They always helped Russia to kind of recover and rule that part of the world uh, quite successfully. Or as Elliot Borenstein succinctly puts it in his book, the Russian conspiratorial narrative offers a story that always reaffirms Russia's role as the hero of history, while emphasizing its status as the world's victim or offended party. Ha! So silly. What kind of a country is based around a ridiculous, totally unprovable myth like that? This is the point where he gives me the uncomfortable job of reminding our preponderantly American audience that their nation has traditionally been very, very fond of similarly unsupported and historically questionable rhetoric. During Jesuit's pre-college education in the Reagan-Bush 80s and early 90s, for example, textbooks were pretty flippant about uncritical usage of terms like manifest destiny, American exceptionalism, and even, to quote the Gipper himself, Shining city upon a hill. Yeah, that. And when you think about it, QAnon itself is another sort of world-spanning, America-centric conspiracy where only the great leader, Donald Trump, and his forces of good can root out a global satanic conspiracy. Or, again, to quote Borenstein, The first, and perhaps most obvious feature of the Russian narrative, is that they place Russia squarely at the center of modern world history. The only reason this might surprise Americans, and perhaps the French and Germans, is that they think this spot has already been occupied by none other than themselves. It is in the nature of a great power, whether current, aspiring, or fading, to adopt such a worldview, because history rewards confirmation bias. So the mythical situation vis-a-vis the U.S. is pretty similar, really, with the caveat that Russians' core narrative is a pure and holy land besieged and struggling, while Americans expect clean, easy victories and a painless shift to a world where everyone prospers under the benevolent hand of good old Uncle Sam. Still, as Yablokov points out, because of our mutual fondness for national myths, our nations also share a trademark weakness. Russia is definitely a conspiracy-prone society. In that sense, it's a twin brother of the United States. One is democratic, another one is authoritarian, but there is one thing that makes both societies conspiratorial, is the idea of messianic mission. Like the United States, Russia is also striving to save the world, to bring something meaningful and super useful to the world in order to protect it, in order to make it better. And given that we're trying here to understand our own overwhelming wave of conspiracy theories through the lens of Russia, which is itself a major part of the big Q conspiracy narrative, and which also suffers from and exports its own conspiracy manias, it behooves us to understand exactly how this great, unique nation became so caught up in its fear of the West and its perception of its own unique world historical position as embattled savior, that we now face a present where not just large parts of the populace, but the Russian state, the government of a country with a large, albeit kind of shittily armed and trained based on their performance in recent months, military, and thousands of nukes, some significant number of which are unlikely to be launchable, 
see previous comment about shittily armed and trained military, but that's cold comfort when one of the functional ones turns your mid-sized American city into a fireball. Why such a state seems totally driven by adherence to bizarre conspiracies. Since, you know, ideally, we'd like to see how far along the same road a certain group of United American states are. Since said group sports, like, the biggest, most technologically and unquestionably deadly army in the history of the world, plus a truly disconcerting number of extremely launchable and almost definitely functioning as intended nukes. Come on, unicorn. That analogy would only be germane if said nation of United States had demonstrated over the past half-decade-plus a real tendency to elect unqualified, unserious, conspiracy-believing, narcissistic buffoons to the highest offices in the land, even handing over to said buffoons near-total control of said army and nukes. And even then, a significant minority of that population would have to embrace a conspiracy theory where that aforementioned vain nincompoop is the only hope the world has to combat an otherwise unstoppable secret evil. Shit. Anyway, to ground our exploration, we as usual start with some history. In this case, per Professor Yablokov, we begin way back in the 19th century with the Crimean War. Hit us with the basics. The Crimean War, fought from 1853 to 1856, was triggered when Russia invaded and tried to wrest control of much of what was known as the Holy Land from the Ottoman Empire. Short version, they lost badly and unexpectedly to the Ottomans, thanks to the fact that the Turks were supported by the French and the English, who cynically propped up their nominal rival to serve as a buffer protecting their interests from Russia. The professor takes it from here. The Crimean War was a serious watershed for the Russian society. The emperor, Nikolai I, a politician focused on the military prowess of the Russian Empire, at some point decided to invade the territories of the Osman Empire, as they called it, the weak man of Europe. So Nikolai decided to invade, basically take under control the territories of today's Israel, Palestine, and Syria, because it was such an important and significant Christian center. It all resulted in the major defeat of the Russian Empire. Militarily and politically, Russia lost access to the Black Sea for more than 20 years. But the reasons for the failure was corruption and was inefficiency, because Russian Empire was relatively good at the end of the 18th century, but then it was not developing technologically and politically and, and industrially and culturally. So Russia was lagging behind, but not in the minds of its establishment. You sense that there are some parallels between what happened in the mid-19th century and what is happening now with Russia and Ukraine. Nikolai died, his son Alexander came to power, and Alexander was focused on making the country economically and politically and kind of socially developed. The loss in the Crimea War caused the great liberal reforms, those reforms that indeed turned the Russian Empire into one of the leading states right on the eve of the First World War in 1914. That was kind of the positive outcome of the Crimean defeat. The negative outcome was 
that immense wave of anti-Western thinking. When Russia invaded the territories of the Osman Empire, both the British Empire and the French got engaged in the battles trying to protect the Osmans because having the Osman Empire defeated meant that they both had to deal with the Russian Empire alone on the European continent. So as a result, that helped a lot of anti-Western thinkers in the Russian Empire to see that all their fears about the West, about how cunning the Britons could be, for example, they all true. They came with a stab in the back and tried to destroy Russia. Great reforms modernized Russia, but at the same time, the loss in the war create the reasons for like true, genuine fear of the Western plot. Then, when Alexander is assassinated in 1881, his son comes to the front and starts one of the most conservative terms of the Russian emperor in office. Just like in today's Russia, all those anti-Western thinkers, they become the elite of the Russian Empire. They design the curriculum in schools. They kick out liberals and Jews from the universities. The mindset is the same. They constantly repeated that. Russian Empire doesn't have friends. Russia's best friends are Russia's fleet and Russia's army. It's a very military-oriented ideology. And that also came to the fore as a result of the Crimean War and Russia's defeat in it. So defeat in the Crimean War in the long run led to important liberal reforms, but also to an ascendancy of anti-Western thinkers and conspiracy theories within the political and intellectual establishment. So this created the base level for the grand Russian definitional conspiracy. But then an enormous, one might say, a revolutionary event happened in 1917. That would be the Russian Revolution. Appropriately named. As everyone knows, this is the coup in which Lenin and his comrades wrested control away from the czars who had enjoyed 350-plus years of more or less unquestioned rule over the nation. And then they murdered the last czar, Nicholas II, and his whole family in cold blood. Indeed. But of course, the national conspiracy obsession hardly stopped with the Bolsheviks' takeover of the Russian state in 1917, nor with their consolidation of the former Russian Empire into the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics a few years later. Which seems counterintuitive. The whole idea of communism was that it was derived from a supposedly scientific analysis of the inevitable tides of history. Why, then, should the vanguard of the inevitable workers' revolution fall so quickly into baseless conspiracy thinking, if history was so definitely on their side? To be fair to them, the conspiracies weren't entirely baseless. They had good reasons for paranoia. After all, the Bolsheviks had conspired their way to power, and of course there were, in fact, international forces that conspired against them, not just the exiled white Russian anti-communist army against whom they had just won a civil war. From the start, the capitalist states of Europe, as well as the U.S., didn't take kindly to the idea of the USSR as the great vanguard of the soon-to-be international communist movement to overthrow their economies and systems of government. And so, Lenin and co. were right to be concerned about conspirators. Borenstein, again, considering a century of Russian history in the light of the suggestion that Russians and their government are paranoid, says, But even if we momentarily accept the paranoid label, we must immediately add the qualifier, justifiably. In the 20th century alone, 
the Western Allies sent a military expedition to intervene in the Russian Civil War, 1918, and the Soviet Union was invaded by the Nazis, whose defeat was followed by the formation of a coalition of powerful countries dedicated to, at the very least, containing the Soviet threat. The same century also saw the collapse of statehood on two separate occasions, 1917 and 1991. Hence the popular appeal of Putin's rhetoric of state sovereignty. Failed statehood is not just conceivable. It is part of the lived experience of the majority of the adult population. But back to the first half of the Soviet era, things changed a great deal once Lenin died and Stalin took over. On one hand, the former Yosef Zhugashvili cynically used conspiracy and paranoia as an instrument by which he consolidated power. For example, his trumped-up arrests and show trials of political enemies. On the other hand, when things went wrong with the USSR's nascent industrial output, including entirely predictable issues with mechanical and other failures, the official newspaper of the state, Pravda, had this to say back in 1937. We know that engines do not stop by themselves. Machine tools do not break down on their own. Boilers do not explode on their own. Someone's hidden behind these events. Now, neither I nor... Anybody involved with this show is an industrial espionage expert, but it seems like the flaw of fucking thermodynamics would indicate that yes, in fact, all of these things do happen, without any nefarious human agency. So Uncle Joe and his regime were clearly getting a teensy bit paranoid, seeing sabotage behind every broken factory widget, a deliberate plot by saboteurs and outside agents to destroy the great five-year plans. So he asked Professor Yablokov to help us understand how much of this was creating excuses for arrests that suited Stalin's whims, and how much reflected genuine paranoia among Soviet higher-ups? That's a good question. The mindset of the Bolsheviks was shaped by conspiratorial views. They created the first state of workers and peasants. A huge global social experiment. They had no template to copy they saw that this always could be the return of capitalism and they will not be kind to the Bolsheviks. When Joseph Stalin chose to close the country and uh, create an industrially modernized state, Stalin also realized that there will be a lot of pressure coming to him from all layers of the Soviet society who weren't simply not ready for this great experiment that costed millions of people's lives. Lots of people were against that. There were several scenarios and Stalin defeated them all. When he was defeating them, he was seeing them as plotters, as conspirators. So he saw conspiracies everywhere. At the same time, Stalin was getting lots of different reports from different people through different channels. In that sense, he had to be like super critical about everything he receives in order to make the right move. And as we know, in 1941, he made the wrong move. When the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union, Stalin thought his days were over. As a result, he freaked out when his closest allies came to his summer house. He thought they came to kill him. So for him, the fear, the embodiment of conspiracy was realized, but they were too afraid of him. So they didn't even consider murdering him. They were afraid for their lives. So they came and said, Joseph, you have to lead us. 
external factors, but also the nature of the society that the Bolsheviks were trying to build, they all sort of pushed to the conspiratorial explanation. If you infuse those conspiratorial motives all the time into your day-to-day life, into propaganda, into the daily routine when you make decisions based on the the ideological framework, well, certainly you will become a paranoid. And that would happen to the Soviet leadership. And of course, as Borenstein rightly reminds us, it's not as if all of the theories pouring out of the Soviet Union during the Cold War were fabrications of the Politburo. He recalls, In the fall of 1986, when I was studying in Leningrad, a friend showed me a Soviet newspaper report that Ronald Reagan's government was selling arms to Iran in order to fund the Contras, the right-wing rebels who were trying to overthrow Nicaragua's socialist government. We both rolled our eyes, but admitted to a sense of perverse admiration. You had to hand it to those Soviet propagandists. Every now and then, they displayed a real spark of imagination. Except, of course, they hadn't. The Iran-Contra affair really happened. Even if nearly everyone involved got away scot-free, Iran-Contra was so baroque that the Illuminati and the underground lizard people would have fit right in, if it weren't for the fact that this particular conspiracy actually happened. 